Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Russ here along with Mike in Japan. I'm here. You're there? I'm here. And you know, it's episode, what, episode 23? 23. And the music just keeps coming. Keeps I was kind coming. of afraid we'd run out of music by now, but no, it didn't Not happen. Not at all. Not at yeah. all. In fact, it's, uh, we're, we're kind of in a perhaps a golden age actually there's some good stuff coming out now i'm really uh i had mentioned a lot of uh, classical piano music coming out but there's uh, there's other stuff as well i'm kind of uh, pretty excited about the upcoming uh not just weeks but months the next month or two yeah. should be uh, pretty interesting comes in fits and spurts in the jazz uh some weeks i don't see much and then suddenly there's all these things that come out that i really want to listen to um i guess you know Live performances are opening up little by little, but uh, still, uh, it's not you know, where it needs to be. But it's given people uh, extra time and new ways to think about how to record their music. So we're getting studio recordings and then like online recordings where people are collaborating, you know, from different places. We've re you know discussed a few of those and uh, other sort of unique ways of. Uh, documenting music so uh, there's certainly a lot of stuff out there and so yeah. you know we've got enough for our regular episodes here uh also uh this week well we've got your attention at the beginning look for interview three coming out this friday yeah uh, about the forgotten but now remembered and recorded classical composer pavel renitsky uh, coming out, an uh, interview with uh, Daniel Bernardson and Marek Stilek, the conductor. Yeah, this, this is an interview we did kind of way back, but we've been holding on to it for the, uh, waiting for the new release of their second volume in this uh, Ranitsky series, which is coming out uh, pretty soon, next uh, week, in fact. Um, That's right. So we're finally, this is finally going to see the light of day. It's a good yeah. interview. So if you uh, like. About an interesting composer that you probably never heard of. Um, I think it's uh, well worth your time. It'll be out on Friday. That's right. And if you, uh, if you yeah, like uh, classical symphonic music, Mozart and Haydn, uh, and you want to hear uh, his equal contemporary of the day, well-respected at the time and also later, uh, you want to hear these recordings. Uh, they're quite exciting, uh, the compositions, and fresh, even though they come from long in the past, but uh, yeah. I'm really excited to well, hear. Well, I think they're fresh because people haven't been <laughs> hearing them. Yeah. They, they, they sound kind of, they're, they're very Mozartian, but they're sort of um, different, you know, they're than different. that. Yeah. Yeah, they, they have these nice kind of, they're, they're in the classical style with these very clear lines in the uh, Right. So that interview parts. will come out on Friday, the same day as volume two is released. So yeah. you can uh, get the insight in behind uh, the recording, right from the conductor, Marek Stilek, and then uh, the man who has made Ronitsky his uh, passion and mission to find uh, the background information and scores of this music and get it performed, uh, Daniel Bernardson over in Sweden. And uh, you can hear their story and uh, lots of insight into uh, other music as well. So look for that on uh, Friday morning, Japan time. That'll be Thursday night in the US and uh, a little bit after that in Europe. But uh, yeah, we're looking forward to getting that one uh, listened to because uh, we've been holding back on it for the Naxos release date. Yeah. 
Okay, so we'll hear that on Friday. Yeah. Um, but uh, for today, I have to say, this has been a very enjoyable week here in uh this is a good Here week. in Japan for us, because well, for us, not for, not for everybody. No, um, the Olympics is happening soon, and that's really in the news all the time. And it seems like just this is one catastrophe after another. It's happening. a comedy of errors. It's and, a comedy uh, of errors. Now I'm laughing yeah. just because I'm, you know, I'm having a good time. There, there was a good joke in the Onion, by the way, where they had uh, they were talking about um, spectators weren't allowed to go into the um, the. Uh, the venues or to see the events. <laughs> That's what, they had this one comment in the onion where uh, one guy said, just to be extra safe, I'm not going to watch it on TV either. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. fantastic. That sounds like a good idea. I've got too much music to listen to anyway. Yeah, so, well, uh, that's what we do. We watch, yeah. you know, we listen to music basically. No synchronized and, swimming for me. And, and what a fantastic week of music listening this has been. I have uh, three um, classical picks that I, I enjoyed a lot. I'll just, Kind of give it away right at the beginning, and also three jazz picks I like yeah, a lot too. Really from like Russ, these jazz from ones. Side. These yeah. are great. Before we get into all this, uh, listeners, uh, remember that uh, in the episode description uh, you'll find links to all this music that we're going to talk about on Spotify and Apple Music, and also at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on our preferred streaming service, Deezer. We can also uh, follow us at username Adult Music Podcast, so you can hear this uh, podcast and all the episodes, along with the playlist for every episode uh, with all the music in one spot. Uh, if you can't see that full description on whatever uh, app you're listening to, come over to our host site, Podbean, where all the links are easily accessible. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe to us on whatever app or platform you're listening to. And if you give us a ranking or write a review, take a few seconds, it's going to help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which helps us grow our audience. So we'd appreciate if you take a few moments of your time to do that. And if yes, you'd please. like to contact us directly, if you've got any comments, good, bad, any questions, uh, we'll be sure to respond. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Yeah. We were looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, getting into the music this week, the first pick that I have is a recording on the Beast label mm. and uh, called the Brandenburg Project. Now, uh, when you hear the word Brandenburg, I think uh, if you're a classical music fan, you immediately think of Bach, as you should in this case. But this is a little bigger uh, than that. Okay, this is um, by the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Thomas Dausgaard, which also kind of excited me because uh, I've been listening to recordings of him uh, uh, of music by Nielsen and Bartok recently, and I've been enjoying those a lot. So when I saw that he um, recorded um, the Brandenburg... Concertos plus extra works. I was very interested in this. Okay, now first of all, let me just tell you a little bit. Not only is this by the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, but it's got some pretty noteworthy soloists on it, um, including um, let's see. No, it's got all the composers here. Let me see. Hawk and Hardenberger on trumpet. We have um, Mahan Esfahani on uh, the harpsichord. Um, there's yeah. This who else is there? Boy. Uh, Pekka Kuisisto on 
Pekka Kusisto on violin. He's a Finnish uh, violinist. These are these are pretty noteworthy uh, performers. I was pretty impressed by the uh, lineup they've got on this record. Um, what it is, is a set of box Brandenburg concertos. And each Brandenburg concerto, there are six of them, um, has a companion piece written by a contemporary composer that sort of... Um, plays on it and I was pretty intrigued by the idea the whole you know the, the list of names they got on this uh, recording the um, the the newer works and of course the Brandenburg Concertos now I don't know about you but the Brandenburg Concertos is one of my favorite sets of works in the entirety of uh, music history um, it's kind of like a you know, I, I kind of react like, uh, you know, dogs to squirrels when I hear the word Brandenburg, and I really need to hear any new recording of that. And this is that and more. Um, this is this is a, a very... Now, most recordings of the Brandenburg Concertos are two CDs, so it's about two hours long. This one has three CDs. There's a lot of music on this because of the uh, project. It's got 12 works on it. Uh, the six Brandenburg concertos and then six, you know, contemporary works. Um, boy, <laughs> and there's a lot to talk about. I wrote, uh, I look at my notes here, and there, uh, I, I made sure I took notes for this because it was such a long recording. I wanted to say something about the, uh, uh, you know, contemporary works, and now I've got this hum- gigantic, uh, you know, file of um, <laughs> comments that I'm probably not going to get to all the way because I just want to going to go off on a tangent. All right, now the first thing I want to say about this is if you are if you don't know the Brandenburg Concertos and you've never heard them before, uh, this is not the place to start. Let me just say that I agree. because um, yeah, because they're a little unusual, and we'll get into that. Now they're very enjoyable. I, I really liked this recording a lot. I'll just say that right up front. But if you're if you've never heard the Brandenburg Concertos before, go for a period instruments recording. I would recommend anything by conducted by Trevor Pinnock. Uh, especially by the English, uh, I think it's the English Brandenburg Ensemble. Or, <laughs> I, I think that's what e, the EBE. I think that's what it means. I'm not really sure. That's the most recent one. Um, there was also one in the year 1980, which was one of the um, first um, period instruments recordings ever. Period instruments meaning that um, they used the instruments that would have been available to the composer at the time. So violins with gut strings, valveless horns. Boy, you want to talk about insane instruments? Turkey <laughs> <laughs> gobble, gobble. And they sounded a bit like turkey calls, but yeah. I remember as a college student hearing that recording, and it was exciting because it was mm-hmm. there was a kind of punk rock attitude to it. To it, to it. it wasn't beautiful, but it was exciting. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it had you know, you know, he had all the rhythms and stuff, and right. there was something very new and exciting about it. And um, I still love that early recording, even though. Over the years, over my lifetime, it's been a pretty exciting uh, project. In fact, um, period instrument uh, players—I uh, think a generation or two have passed mm-hmm. now—and the generation that's playing now are just uh, much better at these instruments than the original uh, practitioners were. You know, these these people learned these instruments from nothing, and then they taught their students, who right. then kind of like worked it out. So now we've got a, a pretty nice sound on it. The one anyway, I. Um- I, yeah. I listen to most often is uh, from the 80s. It's not a period instrument one, but it's the uh, Leipzig Bach Orchestra Gerhard mm. Boss from 1983. Uh, no, I just like that. One. Yeah, it's a really nice one. I picked up years ago here in Japan. Uh, it was all Japanese notes, but I mean, as you know, just sort of 
a definitive kind of Bach concept with uh, yeah. you know sta- you know uh, standard performances and uh, really nice tempos. I like that one a lot. So this one, right. this is a lot different from that. In this many is ways. a lot yeah, different. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll also mention uh, Rinaldo Alessandrini. We talked about him last week on the harpsichord. His recording with a concerto italiano is also excellent. It's got this fantastic uh, mm-hmm. melodicness to it, and yet you can hear all the voices. It's fantastic. It's also got an extra sort of. Um, cadenza for the uh the fifth Brandenburg concerto which features the harpsichord so that's another one but i i would recommend pin either pinox recordings as a first listen now if you're familiar with the Brandenburg concertos you should definitely give this a listen it's a little different now first of all i want to say this is on period instrument this is not on period instruments sorry let me say that again this is not on period instruments on modern instruments uh and you can kind of tell right away um the um there's a kind of um buttery creaminess to the sound like it the modern instruments at you know modern tempo with these steel strings and things like that they tend to uh blend together really well that's the the purpose of them but what happens then is the uh, contrapuntal voices kind of get lost in the mix. You don't really hear them as clearly as you do on the period instrument recordings. And that is the case here, right? You're not really getting like every voice clearly highlighted. Uh, the ten- there's a lot of like kind of blending and like certain instruments will stand out. Also, I think Dousgaard, when he conducts these, brings out certain voices over others, which um, is not the way these are supposed to be performed. Every voice is supposed to be sort of equal. All right, now, but the thing is, this is something new. Now, if you think we're going back to before period instruments, what was happening before the period period instruments movement started in the 80s, and really before that, but it really took off in the 80s, um, was that you had giant orchestral ensembles playing this, these works, and it's just unbearable for me to listen to today. I just can't, I just can't hear these anymore. You know, the Four Seasons, or you know, right. or, or these Brandenburg concertos. But he's got a fairly small ensemble here playing these works on uh, period instruments, and it's pretty appealing, I have to say. It's um, they're very athletic, um, driven. They're melodic. Um, but again, a lot of detail is lost, so that's something. But that that's not that shouldn't keep you away from this recording. Okay, let's get into this and uh, talk about what's going on here. Each Brandenburg concerto is for a separate group of um, solo instruments, and on this recording, the soloists on each Brandenburg concerto are also the soloists on the work by the contemporary composer it's pretty interesting um and uh so it means each one each brandenburg concerto has a different sort of profile as they do anyway but uh, the um the ensemble tends to add a cohesiveness to it okay and it's a little different here though okay let's start with first of all brandenburg concerto number one okay the thing i noticed about this is it's lean and sounding and very fast you know compared to the period instrument um Recordings, the, the period instrument recordings tend to be, well, they're pretty fast, but they're a bit slower because the instruments are a bit more of a challenge to play. You really have to get over those obstacles that they uh, present. Uh, cheerful, energetic. Okay. The accent is on the melodies, as I said, at the expense of detail. Um, not a big loss if you have other instru- if you have other um, recordings of this, but just be aware of that if you're going to give this a listen. Um yeah, okay, I, I said the details are blurred. I wrote this a lot here. 
Okay. All right. So after that, we have uh, the first contemporary work by Mark Anthony Turnage. He's a British composer. And this work is called Maya, and it's for solo cello and this group. Now, in the Brandenburg Concerto, the, um, the contemporary composers were instructed to use sort of the same solo instruments, and they could change. They could make one like a single solo instrument, but they had to use sort of, and they could change certain things um, about it, but they had to pretty much keep to the profile of the concertos themselves. Um, Turnage introduces a solo cello into this work, which isn't in the original work. Okay, he really gives um, the the bulk of the the musical um, activity to the cello here, which plays these really long, drawn-out lines. Um, and the the rest of the ensemble in in box work the uh, this, there's a lot of v- contrapuntal activity happening and all the instruments are absolutely equal not the case in the turnage work okay so it's for a solo cello the uh, the work is called Maya and that is because it's uh, composed for Maya Beiser who is the soloist here um, <laughs> this is the only example um, in which she doesn't appear in the Brandenburg Concerto <laughs> number one version of this because the idea is that the soloist plays in both works because there's no cello in that. Uh, oh, by the way, Mahan Fahani plays the harpsichord in the um, first Brandenburg Concerto, which is kind of cool. All right. Um, but the wind group is the same. Um, I think, um, yeah, there are just these long stretched out melodies the cello sings uh, its line and the other instruments sort of comment on that this work was kind of um, I thought this was a pretty mournful work I have here um, the, mel- the cello line is pretty lugubrious and it's a very listenable work it's about 13 minutes long it's one in one movement and uh, it contra- it's it's really a contrast, I thought, with the first Brandenburg Concerto. It's very different. The first Brandenburg Concerto is very cheerful and has a lot of um, activity and has um, the solo instruments are all interacting with each against each other. Whereas in this one, that all focuses on the cello. Really, do you have anything to say about this? I'm gonna give you a chance because oh. I got so much to say about this. I'm never gonna well, stop talking if you don't talk here. I liked it at first because I thought the cello tone was lovely. Uh, yeah. it's as you say it's a big contrast because it's kind of a brooding yeah. nature yeah, brooding. to that mm. uh, however I was waiting for something to happen and it really didn't yeah. <laughs> it just kept that kind of you know uh, lots of sustained notes so since it didn't really develop into much for me I got sort of bored with it uh, as I did yeah. with most of these contemporary pieces well, I've got some good things to say about some of the contemporary ones uh, all, overall I kind of liked the idea and the, well, the works, the thing is they don't really, I don't know if they stand on their own, but in the context, they're pretty okay. interesting because they're kind of playing with the, uh, I'll, I'll save my comment on that for the end. Cause okay, it reminded well, I'll, me, I'll of, reminded me of something that we've listened to before that took the oh, same really? approach. So yeah. Oh, from, oh back from the Grammy episodes. So. Oh, I got to go back to that. I don't remember what okay. that was. Okay. Anyway, so we get on to Brandenburg Concerto number two. Okay. This one is um, for piccolo, trumpet, flute, oboe, solo violin, strings, and basso continuo. All right. And this one is um, also at a very fleet tempo, and it 
calls for some amazing virtuosity in the third movement trumpet solo, especially if that trumpet happens to be valveless, which is not in this case. I think he's playing a, yeah, yeah. a, a modern piccolo trumpet. Nevertheless, I mean, it's it's still pretty impressive playing. Uh, the fluidity of the way this movement is played is remarkable. This is a very fast... You'll, you'll never hear it this fast on period instruments. Absolutely not. Um, it sounds effortless. It's a really difficult piece to play. Okay, now the companion piece to this is uh, by Stephen Mackey, American composer. Uh, he was born in Germany, by the way, but he is, they were he, to American parents, and then he moved to California shortly after that, so he's actually American. And he's uh, got a, a foot in the jazz world as well, apparently. All right, um... In this, it's pretty interesting. The last trumpet note, it's it's pretty. Yeah, this whole comp- concerto is pretty famous. Um, it goes da 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 da, and then that that one note here is held over, and acts as the beginning to the Stephen Mackey work. They're sort mm-hmm. of connected. Uh, Mackey's work is called Triceros, um, Tri three, and Seros, of course, is uh, I think it's um, Greek for a horn, like the rhinoceros, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the the rhinoceros, you know, seros yeah. uh, is a horn. So, because the soloist, who in this case is Håkan Hardenberger, a Swedish uh, trumpet player, very accomplished trumpet player, in fact, plays three different trumpets um, in this work. They are, um, let's see, piccolo trumpet, flugelhorn, and trumpet in C. So he kind of gets around on this one. Right. At this point, I thought that the idea started taking off. I, I rather liked this. Uh, Mackey's work, Triceros, is 18 minutes long. Um, it's a pretty chirpy work, and it matches the tone of uh, the second Brandenburg Concerto pretty well. It has kind of a, I wrote, a crystalline texture to the gently plucked strings near the beginning. Uh, the horn and the flugelhorn have lots of solo figuration. Uh, he and of course Hardenberger gets a good sound um, as he always does. Um, there are a lot of there's a lot of virtuosic trumpet in this. I enjoyed this a lot. The piece ends on the same melodic fragment that uh, the Brandenburg Concerto's trumpet ends on, so it goes dun 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 dun, and then it's over. So it's almost like an extension of the entire uh, second Brandenburg Concerto. It can be heard as an extension of that concerto. Um, I like the cheerfulness of this work, the playfulness of it. Um, in conjunction with the Brandenburg Second Concerto, I don't think I'd want to hear it on its own. It would be kind of odd, but I thought it was in the it was well done in the spirit of this um, this um, concerto or this project. I like this a lot. Anyway, what do you think? This was one of the better ones. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the woodwinds in the beginning, and then the brass. Mm-hmm. I think there's a horn or it's a flugelhorn in there that's good, and then the trumpet yeah. is very virtuosic. I, I like yeah. the harmonies in this one best because I found them. Uh, to be, you know, mo- not too far of a stretch from, you know, the companion piece in the Bach repertoire, so that they were sort of traditional, but then suddenly something different, just uh, enough to tie them together. So I thought the connection was kind of intriguing. And then you got that kind of the cutesy Bach ending <laughs> was a surprise yeah. uh, at the end. So I kind of like that. Uh, but, you know, being a trumpet player, then, you know, that uh, technique and uh, the the feature of the trumpet in this one I, was one of my uh, preferred yeah, I, numbers of the modern one. So I, I, I sort of thought you would one. like this one. Yeah. When I was actually listening to it. I was like, oh, I bet Russ yeah. is going to like this yeah. one a lot. Um, I also, I did like, usually I really hate it when they kind of connect like an old work with a new one. They, um, 
Colin Matthews did that in the planets when he added the Pluto movement to um, Holst's planets. And now Pluto is even a planet. So there you no, go. We're back to the seven planets again. I'm really happy about that. Nibu- well, I'm happy about it. I don't know that I'm happy about it as planet far as... going to crush into us. What is it? Nibiru or something like that? Is yeah. that going to happen? I don't, I don't know. know. I'm not following this. Yeah, I'm not but worried anyway, about Pluto, it. You'll be yeah. listening to some music when it hits anyway, so we won't care. I just hope Holst's planets planets ends with Neptune as it should. I didn't yes. like that Colin Matthews wrote his Pluto movement. It's, it's in a different <laughs> style. That's a different thing altogether. Anyway, let's get away from this. Back to the Brandenburg Concertos. Number three. All right. This one is uh, mostly for strings, I believe, if I remember this correctly. Um, three violins, three violas, three cellos, and basso continuo. Now, this is very short. It's um, one movement. Traditionally, it has this this kind of intro to the second movement. It really doesn't have a intro to the third movement. It really doesn't have a second movement. But on this recording, and this is why you shouldn't pick this as your introduction to the Brandenburg Concertos. This is one reason. Um, the composer Anders Hilborg, who is Swedish, who wrote the companion piece to this one, also provided a second movement to this Brandenburg Concerto. He wrote his own material that he's, again, going to echo in his work. When I was hearing this, I hadn't read the booklet notes first. And I was, like, walking around town listening to this on my headphones. And I heard the second movement. I was like, what is this? I've never heard this before. <laughs> you know, I kind of, is this some new discovered manuscript? Yeah. No, it's not. It's, um... It's like an it's, uh, intro, really. Yeah, well, Bach's um, original material is an, is also sort of a very, very brief intro to the third movement. It's it's really not a second movement mm-hmm. at all. But Hilborg just kind of wrote an extended sort of... It's very brief. It's like an intro to the third movement. But it's a little odd. You can tell it's not Bach. It doesn't really sound like him. Um, so there's that. And... Um, yeah, the um, second movement that he provides for this um, Brandenburg Concerto consists of music to in his companion piece, which is called Materia. Mm. Okay, this is also for solo violin and strings. Now, again, I want to point out, we had the solo trumpet in the second movement, the solo um, cello in Mark Anthony Turner's work, and here we have a solo violin. Now, it's... I find it very interesting that in Bach's concertos, he's really sort of um, um, obsessed with getting all of the instruments to be solo instruments to be equal. All right, he gives like everybody a chance at all of these like um, Brandenburg concertos. Uh, you could all, you could almost think of it as the American ideal, except that he was German, so go figure. But the uh, these composers are writing these concertos. It's almost like they can't conceive of a concerto for more than one instrument. They're all sort of doing um, their concerti for a single instrument. They're they're really focusing on one on one voice. Okay. Now was this the one? Let me see. Oh yeah, this is the one for strings. Okay. So <laughs> this one started in a really interesting way. Um, it starts with tuning, orchestral tuning, and then there's a little chatter like between the instruments. And then you have um, you have some scales, practicing. And then the whole thing just kind of starts getting louder and louder and louder until it gets this big crescendo. And then, like, the music making really starts. And I rather enjoyed that. I thought it was kind of clever. I, um, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, this one, um, it uses a lot of figuration from uh, Brighton Park Concerto 3 to indicate its... Um, you know, inspiration. Uh, you'll rec- you know, you'll recognize this when you hear it if you know the Brandon Concertos very well. 
it's a fun piece. It has a lot of humor in it. And the thing I like the most about it is that there are two cadenzas, and the cadenzas are completely um, improvised by the first the violinist in the in the first cadenza. He just um, the violinist. I should mention this guy's name. This is uh, uh, Pekka Kuzisto, Finnish violinist, who the piece was written for. Okay, and his whole sound was instrumental in putting this together. Also, the fact that he could improvise the second movement. He comes up with a very interesting improvisation or a very interesting condensa. I really enjoyed it a lot. It was kind of, uh, it was pretty compelling. Okay, a lot of timbral variety, timbral variety. Um, bowing the instrument, plucking the string, playing sul ponticello, and other effects. Um, I was kind of impressed by this because, you know, Strings can get kind of gray sounding, and he really doesn't. He he really keeps the interest up. Um, the fun is really in the first, third, and fifth movements. And there's a constantly changing rhythmic profile, a nice elongated soaring line in the third movement as the centerpiece. Okay, the fifth movement returns to the fun rhythmic patterns and ends that way. The fourth movement introduces um, a cellist as well, who's also improvising part of this cadenza. So it's a, a pretty inventive work. I like this one a lot too. These were my two favorites, the um, this one by Hilborg and the previous one by Mackey. I like those these two the best, really. Okay. Anything, do you want to say anything about that before I go on? Um, this one was kind of interesting for the modes. It has gets into some kind of Eastern modes mm -hmm. uh, and it uh, seems like a voice-like thing in there too that's... Uh, kind of interesting uh although i found in the beginning the strings were kind of abrasive uh to me but uh the contender too i liked sort of the uh bass like solo in there it was uh, kind of interesting um uh, it was okay i preferred the uh the mackie to this one personally. well i like this one yeah. i like them both really yeah Okay, Brandenburg Concerto for my personal favorite. It has winds in it, mostly mm. flutes. And I really love this one. Okay, this is the first one I generally listen to when I get a new recording of the Brandenburg Concertos. Okay. This one's pretty straightforward, I think, this performance of the Brandenburg Concerto. Um, uh, there are certain f familiar approaches to me that were approached differently. For example, legato, like on... And then it goes instead of dun dun dun. People will usually play those um, that ending of that phrase staccato, but here they're legato, and I kind of liked that. It was a, it was a little different. I prefer the staccato, but I was happy to hear that here. Okay, so I really enjoyed this. Um, by the way, if you're interested in the Brandenburg shows, this one has a um, something unique in Baroque music. In the end of the third movement, there is actually silence. Usually you get this kind of like a perpetual motion sound in Baroque music, but at the very end of the third movement, you have a few pauses. Not silence, but pauses in the melody where the, the perpetual motion rhythm just stops. Very surprising for a Baroque work. Okay. The fourth... Um, so the uh, companion piece to this one is by Olga Neuwirth, who's Austrian. And her piece is called Aiello, and Aiello is the name of one of the uh, Greek harpies. Uh, this one kind of comes around to um, restore peace, um, which uh, should probably come around today, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, the harpies were these kind of fearsome kind of people who would, um, these kind of like um, beings who would um, just 
constantly bother people who have kind of committed some uh um what's i can't think of the word some um act that um is not acceptable let's say okay anyway ilo okay uh uses material from brandenburg concerto number four to indicate its kinship no problem here with me i love brandenburg concerto number four uh more than any of the other ones even though i like them all um, this this is a pretty comical work as well. I really like the the uh, fact that uh, these uh, contemporary composers kind of went for a lighter, sort of more comical sort of um, um, you know approach, except for Turnage, who is kind of very serious, uh, and he's usually not. Um, this um, particular composition has some odd instruments in it, including a uh, tuned glass. Like a, I think a wine glass is used. And um, let's see what else we have here. Uh, we have a solo flute, two muted trumpets. Um, and there's a typewriter as well. And also a, um, a bell, like the uh, like the, a desk bell to kind of call someone, which is supposed to sound like the uh, typewriter bell. Um, those of us who are... I like this. One of the things I like about this is that people our age um, have have probably used typewriters you know we were around before computers came around so we remember all the sounds that they made the <laughs> clicking sounds and the uh yeah. the bell when you reached the end of the line you had to move the uh the whole cartridge back to get to the uh, beginning of the um the piece okay the the beginning of the uh you know the margin the left margin of the paper Okay, it's this is subtitled as a ballet mechanique, and it does have a mechanical sort of rhythm to it. It uh, mimics the motor rhythms of uh, Brandenburg Concerto Number Four, um, but where Brandenburg Concerto Four's um, flute melody arches and the rhythm is in the perpetual motion common to Baroque music, Neuwirth has calculated the orchestration and note values to provide a lurching circus-like atmosphere. Eh, this was okay. I, I thought that was okay. Uh, the slow second. Now, by the way, this is the first. Um, contemporary work of of the contemporary works that has multiple movements this one has three movements in it like Brandenburg number four or does it oh no that's not true wait I the other ones my, have uh, multiple movements too Hilberg had Hilberg multiple does, movements yeah. yeah I missed that sorry I kind of should have mentioned it then oh well anyway but th- th- we start having multiple movements with Hilberg and this one continues that that's what I should have said Okay, um, there's a lurching circus-like atmosphere to this. The slow second movement has eerie strings, and the third movement returns to an off-kilter mechanical rhythm. This one, it's it's good. I mean, I just like the Brandenburg Concerto Force so much that I kind of like wasn't as a, I didn't find this one as appealing. But I did like the uh, the certain sounds, like the the bell sound and the the glass, you know, the um, the wine glass sound, you know, with the played with the wet finger around the rim, and the the typewriter kind of clicking every once in a while. The whole uh, ballet mechanique reminded me a little bit about George Antile's um, <laughs> ballet mechanique piece. Um, so it, it kind of put me in a good place. Uh, I thought it was okay. I didn't like this as much as the other, as two, as the second and third, but it was okay. I liked this one too. Yeah, for me, I couldn't wait for it to be over. It's just a distraction. <laughs> um, oh well. Yeah. Um, by by this time, I was where I was becoming weary of this sort of programming, which I'll get to when we get to the end. Of it. Oh, that's yeah. too bad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Brandenburg Concerto Five, the the, the big uh, work for the harpsichord, has a big harpsichord solo in it. Um, it's I think the solo isn't really too um, 
Well, he must play. This is uh, Mahanas Fahani playing this solo, mm. by the way. He's very good. All right. And um, so there's that. Okay. Uri Kane is the composer of the uh, companion piece for this. He's American. And, of course, he doesn't use the harpsichord. He uses the piano, which kind of disappointed me. I really wanted to hear yeah. the harpsichord in a modern work. You know, but um, this piece is called Hamsa, um, which is a, uh, I think, a, it's the number five in Arabic. I forget. Okay, I'll have to look that up. Okay, anyway, I'll tell you in a minute. Okay, this is the longest piece on the disc. Way, way to hog the, uh, <laughs> the time, yeah. Uri Kane. This is a three-movement work. Each movement is nine minutes long. This took almost half an hour. Okay, I, I didn't really appreciate that too much. But I, th- I thought it should have been shorter. Uh, it's sparing its use of the piano, which is the solo instrument. Uh, the Brandenburg Concerto Five uses the uh, concerto, the uh, harpsichord extensively. There's a big solo for it. Again, it frequently recalls parts of uh, Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Five. Movement two is a little spooky, uh, with many dark, sparsely placed tones. This this piece was too long. Basically, is my big complaint about it. It was okay. I mean, but uh, it didn't really um do too much for me. I liked how it yeah. started. It, it sort mm. of started like stately, but then I thought it became like a mishmash of ideas that I couldn't separate, and then it went on way too long. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm still I'm still looking for the meaning of uh, Hamsa here. It's an Arabic word. I know that. Uh, uh, it's the word for five in Arabic. I was right. Okay, it's so number five in Arabic. Okay, and then we get to um. The final piece. Now, in this case, the uh, order is reversed. Brett Dean writes an in- Brett Dean, Australian composer, uh, writes an introduction to the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Six called "Approach Prelude to a Canon." Now, we actually heard a Brett Dean work uh, long ago for trumpet. Mm-hmm. If you remember, it was um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was um, there were two contemporary composers. On this. It was a Beast release, too. I remember. But we both liked that. Anyway, this one starts energetically, goes out to long, drawn-out string tones. The second movement is a bit pensive, and the third movement picks up steam. Uh, the piece blends into the opening of Brandenburg Concerto VI. Okay, this is another one that kind of just goes, goes directly into the, concert, the, the Bach here, which is why it is the only contemporary work on this album to be programmed before its companion concerto. All right, so it's sort of an introduction to Brandenburg Concerto Six. Um, this one, this performance of Brandenburg Concerto Six, I found by Bach, I found to be a little unusual. There are certain verses, voices, and the strings are highlighted. Usually, they're all very equal. Okay, and but certain Dovescard has the certain string uh, voices highlighted, giving this performance a unique sound among other recordings. It doesn't sound like any other recording of the Brandenburg Concerto, and I prefer. Um, period instruments here. I liked hearing this album. I have to say, so my overall sort of um, assessment of this um, three-disc set is that it was really fun. I really enjoyed the kind of like uh, creativity of the whole thing. Um, I li- I liked the the ideas that the um, contemporary composers came up with. They're not really anything that's gonna last. They're sort of ephemeral, but I thought they were um, creative and sort of. Um, it was just a fun listen, so I um it just put it, it put a um a little lift in my step for this week. Anyway, 
take it away, Russ. I know you got something to say about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be the uh, Ebert or Cisco, the thumbs okay, down well, that's on what, this That's one. what we're here for. That's um, why there are two of us. It's just the way that I, I, I guess... <laughs> When I'm in the mood for Baroque music, that's what I want to hear. And I have no problem you know, with... I'm like uh, that too. I have no problem with a different interpretation of something like Brandenburg that's been recorded so much. I mean, why bother re-recording it if you're not going to do something different? And so I was surprised by a lot of the tempos or you know different phrasing and things in this recording, which was all fine because it's variety and uh, doing something. But for me, what, when I listened to this, it brought me back to uh, uh, something. I think this, I don't know if this is a trend or if it's a new approach, but th it reminded me of this album we heard that got a Grammy nomination for chamber music, The Healing Modes by Brooklyn Ryder. No, I, which, I conveniently forgot about that. Which was, um, <laughs> so, this was uh, Beethoven's String Quartet number 15, oh. which was broken up with contemporary compositions uh, based see. on the so-called healing theme of the Lydian mode. And so oh. you had this, you know, Beethoven work and then interspersed all of these, you know, sort of modern compositions. And I felt the same I, thing here. I, I seem to recall that that healing theme made me sick. Yeah. <laughs> So that's how I kind of felt with this. Sandwiching contemporary works uh, is more distracting to me than it is informing because I'm in a different headspace when I want to listen to Bach and when I want to listen to modern music. And uh, yeah, that's true for me too, generally yeah. speaking. Uh, switching the type of sort of, uh, you know, approach or, you know, mental space I need to be in is not something I can do well within one recording and yeah so it, it is not so much i tried to give you know each one of these pieces a fair shake but i can't do that kind of code switching uh so well i so then when i went back and i just listened to the the buck pieces so i yeah. could see how they were different and compare them to other recordings that i know and i and i didn't want to come back to the contemporary ones i don't i wouldn't say that they'd be bad but i would just need to be in a different sort of uh, thinking realm. And I, I really don't like, uh, I understand what they're trying to do and I understand the relationship, but as far as how I listen to music, it just doesn't work for me. So, yeah. All right, there you go. But I, in my opinion, I think um, that these works, th these can't be listened to as just the Brandenburg concertos. They don't really work like that. They really are performed yeah. as yeah. a um, sort of... Um, sort of with their co contemporary companion. So I, I kind of imagine them holding hands if they were people or something like that. Yeah. Um, I would recommend if anyone wants to hear this, um, to listen to them, the, the concerto with its companion piece, and then you could stop there, but don't, you know, don't just listen to one Brenda Richard yeah. and then come back later and listen to one, the contemporary piece that it's, is, is its companion. I think they have to go together in order to get an idea of what's happening here. Um, also, most of the composers, took a kind of lighter sort of approach and I really uh, thought that uh, made it listenable. That's that's my opinion. I enjoyed this. I liked it. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> Recommended by me. Perhaps right. not so much by Russ. It's but, a lot of work um, to get through this whole thing. Too. It's, it's, if it's you a want long to do it, recording. Split it up. That's how I say it. Yeah. I, I just want to say when I was thinking of when I first got this, when I was programming it, I gave it to Russ like about a month in advance saying, yeah. you better get with it. Because we're both working now and it's it's a long recording and I yeah. thought it was going to take a bit of work to get through. So there we go. We finally got to it. Anyway. Yeah. 
I personally recommend it if you already know the Brandenburg Concertos. If you don't, mm-hmm. give it a miss and just listen to the Brandenburg Concertos because they're life-enhancing and you're just missing out if you don't yep. know these amazing Bach yep. works. Okay? All right. Now, being that we're kind of juxtaposing contemporary composers with, um, um, you know, older works i uh, had another recording here just recently released on ecm new series um which um juxtaposes a work by uh toshio hosokawa our first uh japanese composer that we're talking about on mm-hmm. this program with mozart so it's sort of in the same strange bedfellows here vein in a sense and these are indeed strange bedfellows i think um, the uh, performance is by Momo Kodama, the Mito Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Seiji Ozawa. Now, when I saw that name, Seiji mm. Ozawa, I was like, is Seiji Ozawa still conducting? Because I'm pretty sure he's not. And it turns out that I am correct. This recording yeah, this goes to was 2006 made, or something, isn't it? Yeah, it was made in December 2006, 15 years ago. <laughs> was it ECM, then? what are you doing sitting on this recording? <laughs> For 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It was just released uh, recently in recent mm-hmm. months. Okay. But anyway, it was. I saw an opportunity to get this in and to hear a work by a Japanese composer, which I sort of want to sort of um, let people know about because um, they're quite good. Okay. Anyway, let me give you a little um, background on this because we need to understand what's going on here. I actually heard this. The first time I listened to these recordings, I just kind of put the headphones on and just listened to them without reading anything about them because I want to get an idea of what they sound like. And uh, I couldn't figure out why these two works were on, <laughs> on the same recording. <laughs> they sound very different. Tell me. Please tell me why. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell okay. you now because I read the I, – I then went to the booklet notes and found out. Um, this work um, – the work – okay. Toshio Hosokawa, he's a contemporary Japanese composer. Uh, his work uh, on this disc is called Lotus Under the Moonlight, which sort of sounds like it could be a woodblock print, really, in title. Yes. It's, it's such a cliche for Japanese culture, but there's there's more to that. And so we shouldn't just dismiss the title as some sort of pictorial thing here. Okay. it was um, The work was commissioned for the Mozart anniversary year of 2006 by the Norddeutsche Rundfunk. Um, and we should mention that uh, Hoshi, Hoshi, Hoshikawa, Hosokawa, sorry, Hosokawa, studied in uh, Germany, as many uh, Japanese composers do. They seem to like that German rigor. Okay, you would think they'd be more French style. No, no, you know, no, they, they need the tamper, structure. But no, they want the they, structure. They like the structure a lot yeah. too. They, yeah, so most uh, Japanese composers kind of take a German approach and uh, there's a lot of history of, for that here in Japan too the first um, music school established in Japan was by German teachers so there's a lot of that as well um, okay um, so um, he was asked Hosokawa was asked to uh, choose a favorite piano concerto by uh, Mozart and write um, a work of his own with the same instrumentation uh, which by the way he doesn't do <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll get to that in a minute, okay? And uh, he had to recommend a pianist who he recommended Momo Kodama, who's recorded a lot of his works. Okay, she uh, seems to champion this composer as well as Takamitsu and um, other sort of composers as well. Um, 
And he chose um, the A major, um, Piano Concerto Number no. 23 by Mozart in A major, K4088, and uh, especially the slow movement. He made the slow movement in F sharp major his starting point, and his work starts with an F sharp major um, note. And that's about all the uh, similarity you're going to get. Um, I actually listened to these. I listened, the second time I listened to this, I listened to only the Mozart slow movement. And then I put Hosokawa on, and there's just no real, except for that one starting point, there's like nothing in common with these works. Um, Hosokawa's work is a very contemporary work with nothing in common with Mozart. Now, what he's done here, let me see. Um, um, Hosokawa's work, you know, Mozart, of course, he's a, he's a classical composer, and uh, what's important to them is the line, the musical line, okay? Um, there's a melody, and then there are the other lines that are very clearly delineated. And Hosokawa's work kind of sounds more, you could almost say, um, it's more atmospheric. It builds up to these atmospheric timbre-heavy crescendos, and it includes sounds like I heard a marimba in there. There are all kinds of chimes and bells. This has nothing to do with Mozart because he's not using the same orchestration. He's adding to it, let's say. All right, there is a piano though, and I think that's what he means by using the same orchestration. So um, there's the piano solo. Now the work is called Lotus Under the Moonlight, and uh, the lotus is very important, of course, in Buddhism and really in uh, Japanese culture as well. Flowers are pretty important um i don't know if it was um we were working together you and i russ in a high school once and um the students all named their uh it was a it was sports day and i remember that the um students all named their their um sports teams after a flower which we thought was sort of odd you know but flowers are really very mm. important in japanese culture and they, they didn't even choose like tough flowers like the venus flytraps or anything like that they chose like the the hyacinths the chrysanthemums the uh you know the um the, those sort of things okay just ordinary flowers um but flowers are very important in japanese culture and uh zayami who um is the um sort of originator of the japanese no theater he wrote a very famous book about how about the aesthetics of the no theater in japan he said that perfection in performance, he compared perfection in performance to a flower, which I guess is perfection in nature or something like that, and uh, goes on a lot about that. So flowers are really, really important in uh, Japanese um, sort of um, ideas. Okay, and in this case, what Hosokawa is doing, he, he chooses this note F sharp. Now, the lotus is uh, the piano. In this case, the piano represents the human realm, the lotus. The Buddha is often um, indicated as sitting on the lotus. Um, it's sort of the seat of um, the higher mind. The opening of the lotus represents the opening of the uh, of the mind to the higher consciousness, basically. And so, the piano represents the lotus flower, and the lotus grows, of course, in a lake. It's in the mud deep beneath the lake. It stretches out, and then opens its mind to the sky the orchestra in this piece is um representing the world around the piano the human person so the lower notes anything lower than the f sharp that we hear at the beginning represents the muddiness in the lake or all that stuff and the um anything higher than that is the sky the infinite infinity of the heavens all right. So knowing that, <laughs> I listened to this piece again, and I rather liked it. I have to say, it was um, it was fairly compelling. I was kind of 
listening with this sort of idea in mind. Is he in the lake? Is he in the sky? This sort of thing. And what the piano was sort of um, commenting on. Now, his pianist here is uh, Momo Kodama. She's from Osaka, by the way. She's pretty close by. Um, Hosokawa himself is from uh, Hiroshima. Okay. Um, Kodama studied at the National Conservatory of Music in Paris and had some pretty impressive teachers, including uh, Marie Pariah, Andra Schiff, and Tatiana Nikolaevna. Now, she's got a very a very particular sound. It's um, sort of... Th the word that they use to describe it is crystalline, and it does sort of have a sense of this, this glassy, see-through to the rest of the orchestra sort of quality to it. Um, it, and, um, let me see. Okay. There, she, she plays, um, so she really blends with the orchestra very well. Um, there are piano chords and scales carefully placed like objects. Yeah, it's almost like the piano is sort of placed into the score, sort of like to, to sit on it, sort of like it's some sort of sculpture. I almost felt like, um, the the work itself is atmospheric. It's ten, there are crescendos and then it fades, gentle waves of sound that are suddenly upon you. Um, to to be honest though, it's sort of um, it's not empty. There's a real content to it. So there's a that I guess that German rigor that he um studied really um. It had some effect on him. This isn't an empty work. It's worth hearing. I think I liked it. When you hear it though, think about the piano as the person, and the uh, orchestra as the surrounding world. The lower notes are in the lake, the higher notes are the sky, and um, I think it's kind of uh, interesting that way. Now, it f what f the following work is the Mozart Piano Concerto um, number 23. Um, uh, Kodama plays that. It's beautifully played, actually, but um, in the first movement, Kodama seems to be most, most um, comfortable in the really fast figuration. Which I often find with Japanese pianists, they really like the technique. They show that, um, but there's a lot of the emotional elements that are only like kind of half realized, and especially the humor. There's a lot of joy in Mozart's music that a lot of um, pianists don't uh, put across. And she she knows it's there and she does it, but it's not quite as um, cheerful as it could be, as I've heard in other recordings. So I thought this was a a very good performance, but not great. This isn't something I would turn to if I wanted to hear this um, work. Um, the second movement is lovely, um, the inspiration for for uh, Hosokawa's work. Um, and um, again, the third movement goes back to the fast figuration. I want to say, though, um, much as I wouldn't really, this isn't really a go-to recording for me, I did like this a lot more than the Life Ova Ansnes recording that we heard a few weeks ago. Um, not of this work. He didn't record this one on that on that album, but that's coming up for him on the next volume. Uh, I feel like this one's better than that. But again, I would go for Murray Pariah or people like that in uh, this particular work. There are others that are a lot better. Um, I like the Hosokawa work. I think you should give it a listen. That's all I really have to say about it. You have to color me third eye blind on the Hosokawa. I was lost in the... I, <laughs> I think you notes, didn't have the notes. <laughs> no, because my own personal notes just included, well, murky mire. So I guess maybe, you know... <laughs> you got just the, the mud part. <laughs> I was stuck in the mud. Stuck in the mud. One. Yeah, um, I didn't really care for uh, uh, this piece very much. I, I think I had an idea what he was after, so I sort of enjoyed it for that reason. I hope I explained it clearly enough for listeners to be able to kind of 
get an idea, you know, get, yeah. get sort of a sort of um, way to listen to it. Yeah, I couldn't achieve my enlightenment in this one. Uh, in, <laughs> in the Mozart, though, yeah, um, yeah, she has uh, a really nice touch. The texture of her playing is also really good. Um, this we should mention. This is an or this is a live recording, both pieces. And um, oh, there's applause at the end of both. Well, works, yeah, yeah, but but for an, for a live recording the uh, balance with the piano and orchestra is really nice. Uh, and I felt I could hear the, the textures of the orchestra really well, but mm -hmm. in, in the balance with the piano was good. As you said, I don't get any great emotional feeling on the other sort of, you know, places where you can draw that out in Mozart's uh, compositions. Mm -hmm. uh, the technical things are all flawless and mm -hmm. uh, she does have a unique kind of touch uh, to that. So, on the speedier passages and uh, technical things, uh, you have to find performance, uh, not completely moving. There's other ones, as you mentioned, that you may get more sort of emotional satisfaction from. But yeah, for a live performance and uh, overall recording balance, I enjoyed the Mozart one. The Hosokawa, yeah, it's okay. Um, it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're, yeah, it's good. It's if good you're into, you know, something. It's your ears a bit something new in the piano repertoire and you haven't heard this one, it might be of interest. But for me personally, I didn't, uh, I didn't have, uh, I didn't rub the Buddha on this one. So yeah. I have to say though, if we're going to talk about uh, contemporary music, I, I found like say last week's uh, Manus Lindbergh works mm. to be far more, not far more, but more compelling than this. Although I liked this, it was sort of, it was, it was good, but I liked the, I thought the Lindbergh had a lot more in, interesting detail in them. And... It was, it was shocking that one actually. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> what the Lindbergh? You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was pretty compelling. I thought, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Japanese, um, pianists tend to be, they tend not to be hard on sleeve players, which is a bit of, sh of a shame they, they work a lot on technique and you always yeah. hear it. They're always such great technicians. Um, but yeah, if you're going to go for the hard on sleeves type playing, you gotta go, I think you have to go to Europe or to America for that. Yeah. Although, yeah. Anyway, the third man, that, that Bach, <laughs> the Brandenburg project recording took a long time to talk about. We still have one more classical yes, recording. One more to, to go. One more to go. And this one is called, uh, well, it's uh, Brahms clarinet sonatas by Julian Bliss, who is a uh, new um, sound, let's say, a new face, new sound on the scene. And uh, good sound he is. He's uh, accompanied Blissful. by James. Bayou here, yeah, this is blissful playing. All right, now these are the two um, clarinet sonatas, and he also adds for good measure in the middle to separate the two, the Fia Ernste Gesenga by um, Brahms. These are uh, arrangements for violin and, not violin, clarinet and piano. What am I saying? Okay, this, they're probably uh, arrangements for clarinet and piano uh, arranged by Bliss himself. Okay. Now, um, interestingly enough, Julian Bliss, his compo his uh, accompanist on the piano, James Bayou, and Johannes Brahms all have the same initials. So the uh, the cover art has a big JB in the middle of it, just in case we missed that. JB. All right. Now, I really wanted to hear this because um, I've been hearing a lot about Julian Bliss, and I'm kind of interested in the the clarinet. I like its sound. The um, I love the uh, Brahms clarinet quintet, which I know fairly well. Mm -hmm. But the two clarinet sonatas for clarinet and piano, I was never terribly interested in. They're very um, um, uh, late 
sort of um elegiac sort of works and i kind of yeah i like the i like his short piano works his late short piano works a lot because they're short here these are actual sonatas they're full-blown works that he was going to play with uh the the brahms played with the clarinetist that he wrote them for uh great clarinetist of the time whose name i'm not recalling at the moment um but anyway i wanted to hear this for his sound all right, Sonata One, of course. Um, Brahms wrote both of these works towards the end of his life. Um, they're they're among the last works he wrote, actually. Uh, Sonata One is autumnal, rather tranquil work of resignation and letting go. Just what I want to be listening to these days, <laughs> I guess. This is probably why I've never really gotten into these, really, is because of the mood that they're after for. Anyway, Bliss provides a beautiful tone in all of these, and the ensemble is the ensemble, just the two of them, well recorded and well balanced. You can always hear the clarinet over the piano. Uh, the second movement is particularly moving, moving in this particular work. Uh, the tempo and volume levels are perfectly judged. Uh, Bliss gets a lot out of expression out of his tone and phrasing here and i especially like the clarity of bayou's playing in the fourth movement rondo finale he um puts the mood across with complete confidence in its clarity it's sort of like a it's it's a, it's a rondo and he kind of plays it like very um there's a kind of solid quality to it where you just you just know you're in good hands like the melody comes across and it just feels really just that the mood is absolutely right i really liked that a lot Okay, Fear Ernst Gesange, which means uh, four serious songs. Uh, they're originally vocal works. They have words. And um, the songful nature of his playing is exposed here. Um, I think that's probably why he wanted to put these on. Yes. We could hear the, uh, his very melodic uh, playing. And uh, um, it's good. And I think it's good to hear the melody without the words sometimes. You know, some, the words can distract you from how the beauty of the melody. Um, it's always good to go back to the words afterwards, though, I think. Okay, number uh, clarinet sonata number two, the second one, is sad and mournful, kind of like the first one. Uh, Bliss gets a lot out of his smooth, beautiful tone. He gets a lot of sensitivity out of it. Things cheer up a bit in the third movement's middle section, and Brahms uh, seems to like the darker tones of the clarinet. He exposes them a lot in these two works. The thing is, these two these two works for me, they're, they're really great works. I can't complain, but like I... um. With, with they they both have the same sort of mood, and I think um, you know Brahm. I like Brahms's later, shorter works, like for piano. But I think these are a little too too much for me. Maybe one day I'll get into them a little more. But uh, fantastic performances, I would say. And there's a great new uh, clarinetist on the scene that we all need to listen for, Julian Bliss. Remember that name? He's uh, English, by the way. Anything yeah, I found that. Um, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed his uh, tone. It's a very fluid and pleasing sound. Uh, he can play anything, and it's going to sound, you know, buttery and yeah. warm and nice. Um, and then the performance of these pieces, uh, as you say, the the other works uh, being uh, sort of vocal pieces, he captures that well. He's able to impart a voice-like sort of lyrical quality to his playing. Uh, that almost you can almost imagine someone singing hmm. those uh, in the way that he articulates. And then uh, the other thing I liked about these is that he takes very uh, unhurried tempos on these pieces. So it's very relaxed performance. 
uh, which yeah. made them more enjoyable to me because uh, I felt either there, there was no uh, sort of uh, rushedness or uh, uh, sort of unneeded uh, push through them, which works with his uh, tone. So, uh, although yeah, I've I've heard these performances before, and they don't uh, on. Uh, I, I can't remember the recording, but I've heard these clarinet works before and they didn't stick mm-hmm. out as my favorites, but I liked them here and I enjoyed the sort of relaxed journey through them. And uh, yeah. because of that relaxed nation, relaxed uh, sort of quality of them, I keyed into the interaction, you know, between uh, Balidu and, and uh, Bliss. And I thought, that they really have a good communication together. The interaction uh, and interplay between them is uh, spot on and really enjoyable. So I, I enjoyed that. Uh, it's not just an accompanist and a soloist, but I felt that they had a really good synergy in the performance. And I found it quite relaxing, uh, which made me think and listen deeper into them. So I listened to this one a few times and uh, clarinet, not one of my personal favorite instruments to listen to normally, but I really did like that. And his appealing tone made me enjoy these pieces more than I would have maybe with another performer. So uh, yeah, really good. And uh, for me, uh, not a a huge clarinet fan uh, in classical usually, but then I got my, you know, appreciation for clarinet up and also and listen more deeply to these Brahms works. So I enjoyed them. And I think, uh, yeah, anyone who likes, you know, something on a small scale and a beautiful tone with woodwinds will like these. Yeah. I think these, uh, these two Brahms works are a little, I think too personal for me. And this might be the, uh, mm. I don't want to say that the best recording I've ever heard of them, but they're probably the ones that got, they got me a little closer to this music, this music that I haven't really kind of attached to. Like yeah. I love Brahms is one of my favorite composers really. And these two uh, clarinets and eyes, they're a little, uh, just the, the whole, you know, personal secrets sort of quality of it, you know, um, of, of, of an old man sort of in this case, um, you know, just, just never really kind of, connected with me but here more than ever i'd say they did so i'd give this i'd definitely give this a listen oh yeah yeah it was a really nice clarinet sound i mean uh it's one of those instruments i I think a lot you know with uh woodwinds uh the player imparts a lot on what the tonal the timbre is going to be like here and Mm. uh bliss's uh tone is really intriguing and draws you in and doesn't fatigue you at all and uh brings out the richness of the instrument the phrasing is great and then you know following yeah, the brahms you know lines stu- through the pieces it's yeah it's a really nice journey he had a great teacher he studied with uh sabine meyer of the uh berlin philharmonic mm. who uh carrion sort of championed back in the day she's one of the great soloists of the um late 20th early 21st century so uh, he's got good uh good credentials too that's probably where yeah. he gets that tone from yeah it's really nice yeah yeah i'm looking forward yeah. to future recordings from him anyway this is worth a listen especially if you like the works yeah check it out it's a good one 
All right. On to jazz. I'm really into this this week. This is going to be great. It's jazz. It's a good week for jazz uh, for is. a number of reasons. Um, one is uh, we're going to check out some old friends. Uh, yeah. By that, I mean like uh, people that uh, we've uh, looked at and come across on uh, adult music so far, and they're back again. And that we liked. Uh, yeah, that we liked <laughs> in uh, various uh combinations and then uh, a rare one for me because i've got uh, two vocal selections here which i don't go for very often yeah. uh just because not that i don't like vocals but i'm very picky very very mm. picky uh, about jazz or any kind of vocalists uh, the voice listening to a voice is um you know the most personal thing to me more than an instrument uh, of course mm. an instrument is like a voice but uh it doesn't I kind of say words, you know, it's kind of, yeah, but you know. it's like that. But, uh, you know, if I'm going to listen to someone's voice, I would think, you know, well, I don't know, but, uh, if you're going to consider a, uh, romantic partner for me, when people say list their criteria, uh, I often surprise people if they've asked me this question, I said, well, in my top three is voice. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, to me, it, it sort of equals looks because uh, you get used to someone's looks very quickly. I mean, looks is usually like yes or no. Is it clear the barrier or not? But voice is something, you know, if you're going to associate with a person, you're going to have to listen to the tone of their voice for a long time. And if it's an irritating thing, then no matter how good they look, I mean, my... I've never had great eyesight, but my my ears have always been good. And so what they sound like to me is just as important as what they look like. And so it's maybe funny. That's, sound is important to me as well, yeah. but not in the way you're saying really, but I do kind of you know, yeah. notice certain... So, so that's elements. why um, I know a lot of the uh, sort of touted and newly... Um, recognized and Grammy nominated and other vocalists, I really have no interest in listening to. Um, <laughs> well, but some tonight, of them, we, they, some we, of them, there's yeah, some, some that we like. Yeah. Some of them yeah. I do like. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, well, is I'm no uh, make no hiding of my love for Catherine Russell as my yeah, we, we favorite both love new, Catherine Russell. New, uh, yeah. And I really like Diane Reeves a lot, but yeah. there's some others that have come along that I just uh, find quite irritating. Um, but tonight I'm happy to have two of those uh, that I really enjoy, uh, voices that are kind of on different ends of the spectrum. And uh, before that, though, uh, We've got uh, a pianist. Let's go to an old friend here. Yeah, an old friend, a uh, new friend, old friend, who uh, we're both kind of intrigued with. And I've been waiting and waiting, knowing that he's going to come out with something new, and he finally has. And that is uh, the pianist Art Hirahara with his new release on uh, Positone Records called Open Sky. And uh, Hirahara is uh, a... Uh, keyboard player, pianist, and also composer. Now he's based in New York, but he's originally from the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, he's born in 1971, so puts him uh, just about 50 years old now. But he's been in New York since around 2003 or so. He went there to put himself in the pool of uh, you know world-class jazz musicians. And so he's uh, held himself up there and worked with lots of... Uh, famous people and proved that he's one of the uh, worthy 
people in the higher level of talent. And uh, mm, what as I like, he demonstrates here. Yeah. And what I like <laughs> about him is that um, he can do everything. Uh, he's not uh, confined to one style. He can do traditional jazz, which he shows on this recording really well, uh, kind of progressive things, even into free jazz uh, up to avant-garde. Uh, and he has his own personal thing, which I think shows through in his uh, original compositions. That's really nice. And uh, so I've been intrigued on everything I've heard him play. And this one is no exception. This so, was really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I like this. The, the, the sheer range of styles really got to me. Yeah. I almost like, almost like everything on this. There's a couple of things I don't like, which I'm going to. Yeah. Talk about too. Yeah, but, me too. Uh, but nevertheless, I was impressed yeah. that he got into these, not with, uh, not with him. It happens with his associates. But uh, um, this okay. is his sixth release on Positon, and he's here with some uh, some other. Well, as I said, we've got some old friends here. We've got uh, Boris Kozlov, uh, the Russian-born uh, bassist here. Uh, Rudy Royston on drums and percussion, a uh, really nice uh, percussionist. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this name, uh, but guest uh, Ben. Girese, maybe, on vibraphone, just on one track, track four. And we've got uh, Nicole Glover on tenor saxophone, on two cuts, and soprano saxophone. Now, interestingly, uh, we heard Hirahara also with Kozlov and Royston. This is the, the trio bass, uh, just back on ex episode 14 of Adult Music. And this was as the uh, backing trio behind uh, the trumpeter, Alex uh, Sipijin's uh, latest recording, Upstream. Uh, so uh, here, you know, he was playing the role of accompanist, but he really shone, especially yeah. uh, in sort of the ballad uh, tunes. And uh, yeah, we his, both noticed his yeah. uh, presence there. Yeah. And uh, so it's a, the same rhythm section, but with him as leader here. And then uh, Kozlov, we we've heard before that back on uh, episode two of adult oh. music uh with dave kakoski right, on uh, sure thing this. just a duo album uh so you know these names have come back here and so yeah here we've got hirahara as uh the leader and uh, so it was really interesting to hear this and it does not disappoint mm, so we start with a tune uh called groundswell this is a great original tune it it uh, begins uh, with a kind of swelling modal chord, a piano intro. The bass and drums kick in, and it's a really kind of uh, uplifting melody over these modal changes here. Then um, the drums and Hirahara's syncopation and phrasing, they keep this tune like driving forward. It's searching for something right from the beginning. And he has a really uh, nice... Uh, intense solo that he rips into right after the melody. And then there's a little drum solo here and he, you know, punctuates uh, with some piano and bass chords in that solo. And it's, it's sort of always moving forward on this uh, original uh, tune by Hirohara. Really nice uh, way to get started and show you some of his uh, compositional um, accomplishments too. It's, it's really nice. Uh, change of pace in the second tune. It's called uh, Inhibitably, Inhibitably Mr. B. This is a relaxed swing tune. And uh, this, you know, shows that uh, Hirahara can really swing easily, but with really nice, clean articulation. Uh, he doesn't have to play fast or show off his chops. He's got a really nice touch 
And what I also like about his playing, the balance between his right and left hands is really good. Um, you know, some players, the left hand is sort of like an afterthought or something just along with melody. You always get a sense that he's putting equal effort into left and right hand, left and right brain. Uh, what he's playing in the melody is really supported with his left hand really well. And this is really playful and joyous solo here. There's lots of nice phrasing, trills, and some other ornaments uh, in a nice swing style. So the second number is really nice. Uh, and then uh, track three is one of uh, two solo piano pieces on this album, which is a real treat. Um, so here uh, he's all alone. And uh, he starts with some interesting chords that really build attention. Uh, the sort of uh, progression builds tension that ends with these kind of happy cadences that resolve that kind of tension. So I liked that. And then when he uh, adds in his solo over that, he gets some kind of chiming melody notes and runs over that progression that he established. But he always sounds really relaxed. Uh, and I really like that. Uh, really nice, uh, relaxed playing here on uh, Peony. The fourth tune... Hmm is the title track, Open Sky. And uh, this starts out with uh, kind of a rhythmic uh, repeating riff on the piano to start. And then, uh, uh, I don't know how to say his name, but Gillesse comes in on the vibes. Uh, when the bass and drums come in, yeah. And it's this is really nice. This is like airy and really sky-like. Uh, it's, you can, if you think of open sky looking, if you laid on your back and looked up, you would get this, but there's a nice kind of dancing bass line underneath all of this. And the vibes give like kind of a Caribbean kind of feel like a steel drum kind of uh, thing here. So um, a well-titled track. Let's yeah. Say. Yeah. <laughs> it builds to a little bit more intensity as uh, the different harmonics sections of the tune come through. And then it kind of, uh, becomes suddenly quiet. And then uh, Hirahara brings in some kind of like lullaby-like tones that are really like soothing. And now you're kind of, you know, fading off. Uh, and there's a little bit of space there. And then a new beat is established in the bass and drums. And then Hirahara brings in this kind of like uh, interesting cluster, like solo of chords, some searching runs, and then it gets kind of percussive. And it slows down and gets dreamy again. And the piano kind of... Uh, tinkles there's some bass harmonics but it's a very dreamy kind of atmosphere uh for the title track here a very creative piece uh, i liked it and i think this is where i think he shows you know why he you know the new york scene there's uh as michael adon told us there's thousands of piano players there uh vying for some space uh yeah he is a really good player but he's also a nice composer and he brings you these kind of uh different landscapes to put his music on. This is a really nice one. And there's some other ones coming up. Uh, the next track is uh, Mia Bella. And this is a ballad tune. And this brings in uh, Nicole Glover on tenor sax. Uh, here, she has a really nice uh, warm sound. And she plays uh, through the melody on this tune. She has an interesting kind of a wavering vibrato uh, with a soft attack that uh, is, uh, fits the tune well. And she builds a nice solo with intensity and quickening phrases here. And then uh, she reaches kind of a more stately conclusion back into the melody. And it matches. Uh, nice to have a sax on here. 
Uh, track six is called Now Tao Azul, which I believe in Portuguese means not so blue. Hmm. Um, this is a breezy piano opening. And this, this, this is really interesting. This is one of his original compositions. It has a very simple uh, hook. It's, it's a descending pattern of just seconds. So like uh, not chromatic, but an interval, but two notes next to each other on the piano that sort of descends and then it returns again. But he sort of plants this into your brain or your ear. And uh, he develops this idea in a kind of a intensity into a accented section that the drums and bass feed into. It kind of relaxes suddenly and then heats up kind of over this Latin-y beat. And then Hirahara really chimes out some chords and rhythmic figures in his solo uh, developing on that theme. And they drive into the end. And then that accented section uh, comes back with some intense drumming. Uh, so another really nice uh, original piece uh, that builds off, you know, simple elements, but, you know, developed really well and uh, thought out. Uh, track seven is a really unique one. It's called uh, Citadella. And this is a really unique composition. Um, all I can do is describe it. I don't have any of the notes for this, so I don't know what he was going for, but um, it's a really interesting journey. There's a kind of repeated fading piano chords that are like echoes. Uh, it creates a mysterious start. And then over that, he adds kind of like these wind chime sounding sparse phrases. Then there's a spaced out series of chords. Uh, and when I mean spaced out, I mean spaced out in time, not like yeah. uh, mentally. Uh, <laughs> not not drug induced. <laughs> no. uh, with a little bit of dissonance built in there. And then he builds a melody that repeats and grows each time. Uh, and he uses his hands together in an interesting way. This is very integrated. And then he works his way into the upper register later for this kind of mysterious chime sounds. And what I felt like is um, it, if you like used a virtual software to explore a place or something this is kind of like a structure it gave me the impression of going on a tour through a place that's like if it's like a citadel you're like looking at some ramparts or walls and then like an inner sanctum or something and then I, I felt like the compositional structure was like showing me uh, visual spaces uh, that had different meanings or something it's a really unique piece um, you know quite different from other things. I'd, I have no idea what he was trying to do. That's just my uh, impression here. Um, then uh, the eighth track is probably the one I didn't like. Yeah, I thought this most. was kind of rough going yeah. myself. Actually. Uh, it's called Together Apart. And so Glover is back here on tenor. And this, you know, in uh, composition, it's kind of like a post-bop uh, kind of uh, construction. And uh, she plays the melody head. And then um, uh, Hirara kind of suspends the time for a bit and before it gets running with his intense solo, which is really nice. And then the sax solo comes in and then uh, the piano and bass drop out midway. And so she's kind of flying free harmonically, but then it, it gets a bit too wild and honky uh, and just like over this kind of uh, jungly drumming. Um, and then uh, there's a kind of a short drum solo and they're back to the melody. 
But uh, I thought that um, the the sax solo was a bit too over the top and out of character for the rest of the pieces on the album. You know, she's sort of going. Uh, it's it's not that it's free jazz. It's just that it's just too it's just too much unrestrained for the rest of the character of the pieces on the album. And I, I thought it just didn't match the rest of the stuff here. I, I always feel like when, when this sort of thing happens that the, uh, the saxophone player is saying, Oh, I can't say what I want to say with notes. So I'm just going <laughs> to shriek, yeah. you know, make the, make these sounds, you know? Yeah. I thought it's just a bit. And I, I don't think you wind up communicating more when you do that though. I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know what, yeah, it's it's kind of like a jazz freak out. This, this yeah, it's a free track. It's sort of it's a free free jazz freak but, out. But you not would... really, yeah, not it's not really in the character of the rest of the album. No, no, so it I could be cool in a different think, context. I, but yeah, um, here, yeah. I thought, um, yeah, yeah, the only the the only sort of uh, spot on here that I didn't like. But let me kind of uh, recover frame here. Number nine is called Sunday Morning. Okay, a unique drum rhythm to start this one. Uh, Hirahara comes in with some chord phrases that uh, make the tune with these really big pauses between them. And then, uh, this is I really like the way he composes and uh, approaches things. He comes back and then he, he connects the dots that he's laid out in your mind with those chords, with all these right-hand uh, phrases in a solo. You know, So he, he sort of sets a map for you, like sort of almost like, painting the stars in the sky and then he'll make the constellations so you can see the pictures with his hand that's what i felt mm. like here Ooh, nice uh, nice description yeah and then we get a uh bass solo uh koslov he's uh, of course he's got a really great woody tone and phrasing and then uh reminds us of those uh chords that he showed us in the in the sky the stars at the end uh so i, I like that kind of layout this is a nice tune uh, track 10 is uh, Weathered the Storm, and this is uh, sort of a samba. And Glover's back this time on soprano sax. Her tone is, I wouldn't call it pretty. Not too many people sound pretty on soprano sax. <laughs> but uh, there's an upbeat uh, melody here. And um, it's, uh, you know, uh, more of a, lat a real Latin jazz number. And uh, Hirata shows some really nice Latin jazz chops in his solo with some nice percussive attacks, syncopated chords. Uh, Glover keeps things more in the pocket here, and uh, her solo is tight and then ties into the return to the melody, so uh, no more uh, explorations in the free realm here. Uh, a little Latin jazz number. And then we get uh, another gem on this album, the old standard, uh, I'm getting sentimental over you. And uh, so here is another solo piano piece. And uh, well, this is a real treat. Uh, Hirahara shows his touch, which is really nice. And also his uh, creative uh, approach to harmony. He embellishes a bit on this uh, standard. And then uh, he also shows that, uh, you know, he has the whole rhythm section in his left hand uh, here because there's no help here. He gets some great bouncy swinging, creative uh, harmonizations. Uh, yeah, uh, you get a feeling, you know, if you had art over to your house and you had a piano, you'd be set for the whole evening. And uh, <laughs> just 
call out any standards like this. He's got the whole package right here. I really like this. This is what I show. He can play all of these modern things and do uh, a lot of things as he shows in the next piece. But yeah, he, you know, he's got the Oscar Peterson and the Art Tatum studies uh, there, and he can draw on that to uh, just play something nice like this. This is a really tasty piece uh, here. Yeah. Um, then we get uh, something kind of cool. Uh, track 12 is called Empathy. This starts out in, uh, I believe it's a 12, or I'm sorry, a 10-4. There's a 10-beat pattern here. You can count it out when you listen to it. It's a minor riff and chords over a Latin beat, but it's going to soon change up into the time signature goes out there and the rhythm with it too uh, for a while. And then it comes back. Uh, when Hirahara uh, gets into his solo, it stretches out for some really intense rhythmic playing. Uh, and he comes back to the uh, riff a little bit later uh, with a drum solo over the chords. And then there's kind of a three note uh, cute ending. So this is a uniquely uh, composed rhythmic piece uh, with 10 beats to start and then changing up to uh, make sure you're on your toes. Uh, so this is kind of a cool um, modern type of piece. And uh, the last uh, piece on the album is called Nightfall. And this is a kind of a gently swinging waltz ballad. Uh, nice piece. Hirahara kind of builds the phrases of the gentle melody with lots of spaces between and uh, Cause Love has a nice uh, tasty bass solo here. And then uh, Hirara comes back with a really well-structured solo. Again, here he shows his sense of touch and he's backed by this nice textured drumming from Royston uh, before, you know, before he comes back to the melody. And uh, he shows here a really nice taste. One thing Hirahara, despite his technique and uh, kind of creativity, he never overplays. So you never feel like he uh, does too much. He always leaves something. So when he comes to the next piece, there's another aspect of his playing to show. So there's a great maturity in his playing with also a lot of variety. So I feel like um, this release is really good. Uh, despite the, you know, the overplaying on the sax a bit, I think uh, I would have been happy just to keep, uh, with the jazz, with the piano trio, although the uh, the vibes on the one piece were really nice, um, but you know Hirahara is really creative and nuanced pianist, and he's uh, accomplished in a variety of styles. He can you know go back to the old eras uh, and pick up a little bit of stride and really some swing. He can play on his own. He can play in a group. He can play uh, swinging. He can do modern type of things. And especially here on the two solo pieces, he shows that, you know, he's complete on his own. But in his own compositions, he shows a real freshness that's really enjoyable. Uh, and so this is his sixth recording. You can go back and look at the rest of his catalog. Uh, it's all satisfying. Uh, and then I'm always going to be interested in what he does next. Yeah, me too. Um, the, when, when I hear that he has uh, six other albums, I, I just think the, the sheer variety of... Um, styles on this album is really uh very impressive um and yeah. i just kind of wonder 
does that does that happen on the other five albums as well? I mean, I haven't I haven't heard them. I do like his playing a lot, um, and um, I thought Nicole Glover I, she just overplaying. She just kind of overplayed on that jazz freakout. I thought she was mm. really good throughout as well. Um, just that one track I thought was kind of odd, yeah. but uh, yeah, I enjoyed this album a lot and the the playing. And I've actually uh, it's available on CD and it's on its way to my house. I just want to oh, say that. Yeah. yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, he's got um, mm. a really nice touch, and uh, well, as we saw, good sense his, of harmony. His harmony too is kind yeah, of like, harmony is yeah, like nice. His, uh, ear, you know, the like, ear he has for harmony. I like um, what he does with both hands. You know, um, the balance right. and uh, it's wh- something. Yeah, it's um, it, it's an older style, sort of. You know, sort of concentrating on um. Yeah, yeah, having like a rhythm section on your in your left hand and sort of yeah. I think I picked you know. that out when he on the Sipiogen mm-hmm. because that was a quite uh, forward, uh, very much uh, kind of modern chromatic recording. But on the right on the sort of more ballad type pieces, as an accompanist, he shines with the way he supports someone too. Uh, so yeah, I really think um, he's a pianist that. Uh, it deserves some more recognition because he's right, got I think a, so too. a lot of nice elements uh, in his playing. That uh, yeah, and 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 as a composer, he's very interesting too. Uh, like I say, that uh, Citadella and other ones had me really uh, drawn in as to mm-hmm. you know trying to map out what I'm listening to. So I liked that a lot. All right, on to jazz vocals. I can't wait. Okay, I love jazz vocals really. On to the vocalists. So I've got um, two kind of contrasting uh, in, uh, how should I say it, life stage uh, singers, but they're both really great. And uh, again, bringing back uh, some more old friends here. The first one is called Staying in Touch. And uh, despite the spelling, and I don't want to <laughs> pronounce these uh, these uh, names, but uh, I believe it's Shin Ig is the singer, a Danish jazz singer who's here with uh, one of our old uh, adult music friends, Thomas Fonsbeck. Yeah, he was on the uh, uh, Piranunzi recording. Piranunzi recording, yeah. yeah. And so these are Danish jazz musicians. And so uh, Shini Ig is a uh, Danish jazz vocalist. Um, should be about, uh, well, we shouldn't... Um, Speak of a lady's age, but uh, here I think it's, uh, I want to say it because I think that's one of the charms comparing these two recordings. So she's a a vocalist. She'd be about 43 years old and she's recorded uh, eight albums under her own name and also several uh, collaborations uh, like this one. And this is our second collaboration with Fonsbeck, who we heard uh, way back in episode one. Moreau. Of adult Did music. Really? Hello World. That's right. Did um, we talk about that? was one of the did. two we talked yeah. about on that episode. Stephen Hall and uh, this one. Stephen Huff's got a new record coming out soon, yeah. by the way. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that again. Adult music duo recording with Italian pianist Enrico Piernunzi on The mm. Real You. And uh, so he seems to. He, he's um, a bass player, by the way, just so people know. Yeah, Fonsbeck <laughs> is a bass player. He seems to really excel in uh, these sort of duo 
type of formats uh, because he's so awesome at doing more <laughs> than just playing the bass. He's the whole rhythm section and other things. Uh, he, he I may, plays with a lot of class too. He's got like yes. a real, you know. So I, I may um, include um, the recording. There's a, a concert from last year. It's an online concert in the COVID period with uh, uh, Shinig and uh, Thomas Fonsbeck. And uh, he also, uh, other you know, on the recordings, I've only heard him play uh, upright wood bass, but he also plays electric bass. And when he plays electric bass, he plays it more in a guitar-like uh, style. So he includes, you know, uh, chordal type of things uh, in his playing. So he's, he's really accomplished in technique. And uh, I believe he's a uh, student of uh, the other uh, great bassist, uh, Niels Henning Orsted-Peterson. Uh, mm. And so he's learned well, and uh, he's also <clears throat> quite creative in his compositions, as we'll see here. So uh, there's a really wonderful album uh, here for uh, the vocal quality and also the content and variety. Here. So we uh, get started out with a, actually a Fonsbach original tune, uh, also, uh, I think the lyrics are contributed by Haley Hansen. It's called Spring Waltz. And uh, so on this whole album, we're treated with just voice and bass. And on a few tracks, there are uh, some uh, strings, which is uh, a string ensemble uh, called now, Live Occasionally, strings. it's him bowing the bass, too. Yeah. He's uh, doing he, that as well. He does some various things uh, with bass, and then there's a string ensemble, live strings behind them. But for most of the tunes, it's just bass and voice. So you can imagine the challenges here. First, for the vocalists, must have extremely well-developed sense of pitch and uh, you know, to be able to you know carry the melody over just that bass and the bass player must be able to also be the uh, rhythm section and driving the drums and also, you know, uh, include enough harm harmonic structure that uh, it backs the tunes. That's all you're going to need on this recording because these two are so great. Uh, yeah, that, this is uh, so good. It's really good. And so on this tune, uh, uh, Spring Waltz, uh, Fonsbeck, yeah, he's a really he shows some really good composing on these tunes here. Uh, when uh, Eve's voice comes out, you're gonna see that her voice. This is a fully mature woman's voice, and it's got great warmth. And uh, so she's a lady uh, in her 40s, and you get that like um, you know as been, uh, been there, done yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> in a good way. Um, <laughs> When you way, see yeah. when you see her live, I'll include the video. She seems uh, like such a warm and open, nice person, and that comes across in her vocals. But as you know, as the the human voice ages, uh, you develop different characters if you follow singers right. through their career. And um, she's been around for a while, but uh, this warmth and maturity that comes through her voice that really carries well through this whole recording. And I found it really intriguing. Um, so the warmth comes through here on this uh, Fonsbeck tune. She can insert a nice bluesy phrase convincingly, uh, which is interesting for, uh, you know, a Danish singer. Uh, do they understand the music, American music, the jazz feel, the bluesy feel? She's very good. Uh, she's got it. Uh, after, uh, the verse, there's an uh, 
interlude here that has some jumping intervals. This really shows that her sense of pitch is really dialed in to be able to sing this way with the bass. Really nice vocalist. And she also shows, uh, other than the uh, warmth in her voice in mainly the mid and lower registers, she can get a lighter tone in the upper register when she wants. Uh, this is a nice original composition, lovely number to start things out. Um, second tune, uh, jazz standard piece, uh, Too Close for Comfort. And here Eeg shows her uh, really swinging ability on this standard. <laughs> And when you've got this snapping, walking bass, Fonz back lays down here. It's just like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you can hear the whole drum. He doesn't need the drums because he's really in a groove. Uh, so she shows her swinging ability here. And Fonz back, you know, he's really laying, laying down these uh, walking bass lines. She has a nice scat solo here, too. She's got good jazz chops. Uh, Fonz back takes a rhythmic solo and he, he's the whole rhythm section here. Um, and uh, when she comes back in, uh, one of the things that I really like about her singing uh, that, you know, I look for in a vocalist is that joy of singing. Uh, as I mentioned, like we both like Catherine Russell. I right. get from uh, Shani joy in singing. Uh, she makes me yeah. happy when I listen to her. And I got that through this uh, number. Um the third number, another Fonsbeck original, and this is a darker tune, but it's very interesting. Uh, it's called Orphans, and uh, that's what it's about, orphan children's. But it's a great composition, um, and uh, he's really has, for a jazz bassist, he gets a really nice sort of pop sensibility in his uh, original compositions. So here the live strings are back for backing, uh, and this is a kind of a six, eight waltzy feel, uh, the strings add a lushness to it. And so it's a tune about, uh, orphans experience and the way it's set up, the verse is very minor, which creates a sad feeling, but the, the chorus moves into sort of this major refrain. So it brings you from sort of dark to light. Uh, when you listen to it. A very nice uh, composition. And then since this is Fonsback original, uh, his bass playing is really outstanding. It's woody and melodic. And then he adds in these sextuplet figures in his solo. It's amazing technique. And then when the vocal comes back in, he has all these kind of dancing intervals underneath uh, her vocal. This is really, I mean, it sounds so smooth, but what they're doing technically is really great. And uh, E herself highlights the emotions outlined in the lyrics and harmony. And she, but what I like about her um, in her maturity too, there's always great restraint. She never oversings. Uh, she just gives the right amount of passion and emotion. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really impressed with Fonsbeck's uh, songwriting. Is this great? pop sensibility inside these strong tunes uh, here. So uh, very interesting and nice performance. Uh, track four, uh, the old uh, Dave Brubeck, uh, famous tune written by Paul Desmond, take five. And I, I guess- was wondering about, I was wondering about that. I didn't know this had words. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> I think Brubeck's wife wrote the words or something to it because it's credited okay. to Lola Brubeck, so- Okay. That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause we know the melody, but we never heard the, the right. tunes, but the lyrics, but 
I hear um, it's a nice kind of new bass ostinato that starts it out because normally it was that Burbeck left hand booba 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 booba. Here, yeah. uh, Fonsbeck creates something new. He's got a different bass line uh, that matches those chord changes. Um, and it's sort of ostinato, it just repeats, but then you realize the tune. They keep this one really light. Um, and Fonsbeck adds some kind of woody tapping on the bass for some extra rhythm that's just nice. Uh, Eeg shows she has nice enunciation of the lyrics, even though you probably haven't heard the lyrics. Uh, I think I may have heard them once before. I think this is the first but, time for me. Yeah, but anyway, um, she keeps the enunciation really nice because the melody is very serpentine, but uh, you'll be able to make out the lyrics. And she adds some vocalizations in between the verses. Yeah, unique uh, performance of a tune that we know. Uh, track five is one of her original tunes called The Streets of Berlin. And it's a nice ballad. The strings are back for kind of a lush backing. This shows off her warm register uh, in the lower uh, range very well. When she goes up high, her voice is very pure and smooth, but she also adds some uh, nice bluesy pitch bending on this number for a nice emotive effect. Uh, this is a good tune. Um, one of her originals. Interesting contrasting sections, and it shows her talents off well. So, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people add in original compositions that are just sort of filler. Not so here with Fonsbach and Eeg's works. Uh, they're very nice. Uh, then we come to number six, uh, which is uh, a tune everyone will know, a cover of Lennon and McCartney's The Long and Winding Road. Uh, and what this shows off is Eeg's phrasing abilities. Uh Everyone knows this melody. So she instinctively knows where the energy needs to continue with connecting phrases. So if you listen to this, you'll notice she never breathes where it will interfere with the connection of phrases. Uh, so uh, things where you think, oh, God, she's going to need a breath. No, nope. it just continues over. Uh, very tender, respectful treatment. And uh, Fonsbeck's bass is great underneath her vocals. So very respectful uh, maybe a bit conservative performance of it, but it's really lovely. Uh, then uh, number seven here, the old uh, Irving Berlin uh, standard, How Deep is the Ocean? This is a nice slow stroll on the standard. Uh, Fonsbeck's rhythmic variations under the verse are great. And he goes off walking along uh, underneath, and there's another nice scat vocal from E who... Uh, when she swings uh, really liltingly on this. Um, Fonsbeck takes a nice bass solo here, and his rhythm is rock steady, uh, no drummer required. There's a lot of space on this tune uh, for things to breathe, and their interplay is fabulous. This is their second album together. They just work really well together. Yeah. Uh, they lock in, and uh, it's effortless. Uh, we get another standard for tune eight, the Cole Porter tune, just one of those things. Some really amazing bass figures to get this uh, standard going. It's fast, but uh, in the bass, but he keeps it loose on top and she sounds like completely relaxed singing the melody uh, over these frantic bass lines below. And you need, you need really amazing pitch control to be able to sing like this because mm. he's going all over the place. And uh, this one sort of, it's sort of a race. They're on a, 
you know, full on to the end and then it's over. So it's great fun while it lasts uh, here. Uh, Number nine is uh, the uh, Thelonious Monk tune. We're on midnight. Uh, Fonsbeck does a real extended intro here uh, before uh, E comes in on the verse. A really nice interplay here. The tempo is is really relaxed. It just swells and stretches with the phrases. There's no... You know, you can't count it out or lock it in. It's just completely natural matching uh, what's going on with the melody. Uh, Eek shows that she can add some really nice bluesy intervals in the right spots. Uh, Fonsbeck takes an extended uh, solo here, and he explores the harmonies of Monk's tune. And then uh, she comes into the, the, you know, ending. It's sort of like a coda on this piece uh Oh, and the chord progression keeps going, and she has a really nice ending uh, with the vocals over that. Yeah, interesting to hear this with the uh, words, by the way. This is uh, yeah. usually an instrumental. I had heard this with words before, though. This yeah, you don't hear it very often. Though, words, yeah. But yeah, it's a good one. Nice treat. Um, then we've got, uh, well, the uh, mentor and teacher of Fonsbach, the great uh, bassist Niels Henning Orsted Peterson, and uh, Lisa Freeman's tune. Uh, those who were this is an, another nice uh piece that's uh, it's a very poppy ballad and the strings are here but um this um well you know when vocalists choose the song makes the vocalist in a lot of cases uh, in the case of a lesser vocalist but here we've got you know got uh she's a great singer and this song just shows off her talents well this allows her to jump between registers in the melody and uh, it really shows off her warm uh, tone and then, you know, her higher register too. So, uh, and then uh, in here, because the strings are sort of, you know, providing the harmonic uh, uh, background, uh, Fonsbeck has a really nice solo here that the strings uh, back to. So it gives them a little bit more uh, space to work on here. And then uh, the tune ends with a kind of interesting tune, uh, <laughs> the uh, dry cleaner from Des Moines, which was a sort of collaboration tune between uh, Charles Mingus and Johnny Mitchell uh, back in the day. I think probably uh, uh, Mingus is usually credited with the composition. But uh, yeah, they do it in a really swinging fashion. And here uh, E shows off her jazz chops uh, a lot. Uh, over Fonsbeck's kind of driving bass. There's a lot of intervals uh, here in the melody, and she gets another uh, scat vocal, and it's charging along, and then boom, suddenly it ends. Uh, so be ready for that uh, final right. ending. So, yeah, this is a fine recording. It sounds wonderful, and all you need is the bass and vocals. The amount of space here is just wonderful. Um, because uh, you can focus on her wonderful voice tone and then Fonsbeck's amazing uh, bass technique and tasty things. It's a nice mix of material. We've got these standards, some interesting covers, you know, Johnny Mitchell and the Beatles, but Fonsbeck and Egg's originals, they're not fillers. These are intriguing compositions. They really, you know, uh, stand on their own and take it to different places. Uh, E's voice is rich and mature in tone and style. Um, you know, it, it, you're listening to a, a developed, uh, full woman's voice here. Uh, and she can do a lot of things, but one thing she doesn't do is she doesn't show off and she doesn't over sing. Uh, 
you're not going to get tired out before you get to the end of this because she has the, the taste for uh, restraint. But she has great enunciation. She's got nice phrasing. And she's got good nuances added to make the tunes her own. And Fonsbeck's bass playing is awesome <laughs> throughout. He's just a, a really great player. I'll, I'll, I think I'll add the uh, YouTube link here. When you watch him play, this guy always is having a lot of fun. Uh, and he's got like a zip up hoodie on and uh, he's just there <laughs> to have some good uh, fun. Uh, great vocalist in a minimalist contra- uh, context with Fonsbeck, who's an awesome uh, bass player. Highly recommended. This is a great yeah. recording. I took to this right away myself and really wanted to have this on a CD, but there doesn't seem to be a CD available, at least not at the moment. I hope they'll release one. It's, yeah, it's only so. available digitally because I did like this a lot. This would be yeah. one I'd want to keep and remember. Yeah. I mean, the Danes, they've got they got the jazz thing. Uh, I got to tell you, if we ever are, have to move to uh, Denmark, I think we'll be okay there. I think we'll be all right. Get some Dolly speakers. A lot and, of good uh, jazz. You got your Dolly speakers. You got your great symphony orchestras. You're okay. Yeah. There's some great composers yeah. there too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think we'd uh, fit right in. <laughs> no complaints. And yeah. uh, we'll top things off. On the other end, uh, we went from uh, mature female vocals. Let's go down to the green roots <laughs> to, side. To with an, an immature female. <laughs> with an, yeah. She's with not a new immature, vocalist. She's, she's a new um, vocalist. Yeah, yeah uh, which a uh, wonderful, youthful voice of Samara Joy. And this is on World Wind Records. So uh, Samara Joy is an uh, up-and-coming vocalist, and uh, she got attention... Uh, because she won the Saravon International Jazz Vocal Competition in 2019. And now she is a whopping 21 years old. Yeah, and she does wow. have a little bit of those darker tones in her voice, doesn't she, that Saravon yeah, had. Yeah. One wonders that once she reaches 50, she, she may actually yeah. have that full uh, Saravon palette. We don't really so she's know. only 21 years old, and so yeah. this is her self-titled debut release. And uh, what I like, is that this is the way you're supposed to do your first release and maybe a couple after that. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know the decisions made, but this is produced by uh, Grammy-nominated uh, person uh, Matt Pearson. And uh, she's backed by another uh, adult old music friend of ours. old friend, <laughs> uh, Pasquale Grasso and his trio, this is Ari Roland and Kenny Washington uh, for a release uh, that is going to uh, bring out uh, Joy's reputation, hopefully. And we, well, we saw uh, Grasso's uh, latest recording back in episode 12 on adult music, our string thing. Well, for better or for worse, uh, I have some comments about uh, having uh, Grasso here with that but uh what i like uh, i don't know if, how much of it is her decision or the uh producer matt pearson but you know what when you start out as a new uh vocalist uh you you had better start out with the traditional material hmm. i don't want to hear your original compositions too soon and some vocalists recently have done that which hmm. has lowered their estimation uh, in my uh, yeah, we you had that with uh, Susanna Alexandra earlier in the year. We talked about her. 
Yeah, uh, and I was, Although, there's another, there's another I think one. She's I, done other. Yeah, I'm thinking of, but um, you know, uh, you've got a. You're thinking of maybe Jasmine Horn, maybe. Uh, but that's she did. the one. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, but um, she did like she did a few covers on her first album. That's okay, but you know, I want to hear what you can do with what other people have done first, and come up through that uh, the same way that a, you know, a jazz uh, musician would on an instrumentalist, um, and. So that's why I'm particularly pleased with the material on this one. And also, uh, not only that, but they dug deep here. And so we get, you know, some uh, maybe over-treaded pieces, but we get some pieces that are surprising and forgotten uh, here. Mm. Always um, happy to hear them again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or maybe you haven't heard these uh, for a lot of people. Uh, and uh, But... Uh, she has the kind of voice that is uh, rooted in the past and so can bring out uh, some pleasure in all of these old tunes here. And uh, she does that and uh, you know, pulls you back into the past while giving her, uh, you know, uh, young voice addition to these things. So this is really uh, fun. So we start out. Uh, what could you start out more classic than Hoagy Carmichael's Stardust? Right. And, uh, well, Grasso starts it out, and then uh, Samara comes in on the uh, intro, and right away you're going to be struck with the sound of her voice. This is a very youthful voice. It's very pure and honest. Yeah. Uh, and so that tonal quality is going to strike you uh, right away. The next thing you'll get after she uh, comes through a few lines of this is uh, also excellent enunciation. Uh, mm -hmm. She gets the words out there that you can understand and nice phrasing too. So uh, she's got uh, all, as you're uh, checking off the checklist of things of a good vocalist, she's getting all of these uh, things right away. And her tonal quality is really interesting here. She gets a really clear sound on the high notes, but when she comes down uh, in a lower register, she can get this real warm roundness on vo on vowels when she chooses, which I really liked. Yeah, I like uh, it too. So, I like that too. Uh, yeah, really nice. Uh, track two. Another, yeah, by the way, before we yeah. get into track two, I just want to say about track one, uh, Pasquale. It's her and Pasquale Gr Grasso only, I think, on this track. Right. Yeah. And Grasso plays a lot. I mean, I think he yeah. kind of overplays. He sort he, of overshadows her a little bit. I, yeah, thought, I thought he could have been more restrained. That's my... Um, he's pretty amazing, but... Uh, <laughs> my comment, uh, yeah, on this album is Grasso does over... Um, well... I, I, I like that's true though. Once the bass and drums come in, he seems to be more restrained, but because yeah. and she stands out more. But I felt like on this track, he was really just doing all these like runs and stuff, and you were listening to him and not to her. I thought that yeah, was kind yeah. of a. I mean, I like Grosso a lot, and uh, when it's him and his trio, it's always amazing. Yeah. But I thought he, that's part of his personality. <laughs> it's just the way he plays with those huge arachnid type of you know finger joints that he has <laughs> and stuff. So, um. Yeah, it's but I felt bit, like once the bass and drums came in, like she was the star again. You know, he was kind of just kind of filling yeah. in. I mean, it she's nice. she's wonderfully restrained vocalist, and so uh, <laughs> I, sometimes I just feel like she could do with you know uh, a player who is a little bit more restrained uh, <laughs> uh, than than Grasso. Um, 
you know, no, no, no kind of gets out. I like Grosso's playing a lot, but sometimes yeah, I too. found like I was listening mm. to him too much rather than uh, her playing right, uh, right. somewhere else. And then that comes up later. But uh, uh, so I'll check to uh, another jazz standard. Everything happens to me. This one's nice swinging uh, arrangement here. Um, she gets uh, really uh, relaxed singing here. All the accents are just where you want them in the lyrics. Uh, Grosso takes a solo. There's a nice uh, bowed bass solo, which comes up more than I had expected on this album. Uh, always a nice thing. And on the last verse, uh, Joy shows her vocal range, and she conveys the joy of singing really well in this one. Uh, she's a singer that it will make you feel happy. Um Track three, uh, digging a little deeper. If you never fall in love with me, a tune we don't hear uh, too often. This one's got a lot of tricky rhythms and things to navigate, but uh, some other joy takes them on grass gracefully. Uh, Who's here, the writer? Uh, this is uh, Sam Jones. Okay. I uh, hear another one, Grasso, I think a bit busy behind her with his rhythmic figures, a bit distracting. Just tone it down a little bit. Uh, they're having a lot of fun, but, you know, yeah. uh, a, a little bit uh, much maybe uh, here. Um, track four, Let's Dream in the Moonlight, uh, Matt Melnick tune. Here's a very fast tempo over driving bass, and uh, Samara Joy phrases the melody really nicely. Uh, Pasquale comes in with one of his lightning speed solos. You can just yeah. see those finger joints and knuckles flying all over the place. <laughs> and uh, he also trades with the drums at the end uh, before the drums uh, come back in. Uh, five, uh, Frankie Lane. It only happens once. There's a really nice strolling tempo here. You're in a time machine here. You're, she takes <laughs> you back. Uh, how can this young girl have... Um, captured you know the this vocal style of early periods i don't know what she was listening to but she's got it uh lovely melody uh she puts just the right emotions into the lyrics and she adds some lilting ornaments perfectly with great phrasing uh i like pasquale's solo here it's really nice some fun cascades they're just <laughs> you know, these kind of things that he could do on that fretboard and uh, some other joy adds a nice ending uh, for the last verse. And I like the way she controls her vibrato. Um, then we get to a, a tune. Uh, I really like this tune, Jim. Jim. Yeah. <laughs> this stood out uh, for me too. I was kind of, yeah, the lyrics were pretty interesting. It's a great well. lyric melody tune. Uh, Cesar Petrio, Milton Samuels. Uh, it goes back to the 40s. Um, this uh, just starts out with vocal and bass. Uh, this tune has a great melody, and she hits all the interesting intervals with great enunciation, and she picks up the intensity and variety in the following verses. But I like, you know, again, even at her young age, she's uh, got the restraint. She never oversings this. Um, and here, another nice Pasquale solo and a bold bass solo, and uh, she brings some... Nice uh, high notes on the end. This is a great tune. I, I really like the lyrics on this one too. You know, it's like, <laughs> I love this guy, Jim, but it's never going to work out. But, yeah. you know, I can't help it. Uh, this is great. 
yeah, this is a fun, t- a forgotten tune, um, but they dig deep for this one uh, and it works out really well. Uh, track seven is The Trouble With Me Is You. There's another nice swinging tune. That Great inc- title. Yeah, and it incorporates this stop time in the vocal uh, verse, which is really cool. Uh, and this is just bass and guitar, no drums. And uh, Pasquale takes a, a solo after the first verse, and then he's back with another uh, uh, verse. And don't, th- th- this is kind of curious when we get to here. It's like they're just throwing these tunes in here. This tune is uh, two minutes and 36 seconds. So mm. this is a short solo back with another verse done, uh, short and sweet. And then you're like, okay. Um, <laughs> then we get uh, this tune by uh, Kitchens and Herzog. If you stay the way I dream, Another it's waltz- title. <laughs> waltzing nicely here, but the tune is done in a minute and 57 seconds. <laughs> right. It's like, boom, uh, we're just out. Um, uh, then uh, the more familiar uh, lover man, where can you be uh on track nine uh this is a still rather short uh, not comp- not as short as the previous ones nice treatment she shows some bluesy infections here uh but it's still kind of short to and to the point version uh track 10 is uh only a moment ago uh milton ager and billy rose this was uh i believe uh, made famous by tommy dorsey and uh, it's a little bit more of a Latin-y feel here. And uh, Samara Joy does the melody really nicely. Um, then we've got uh, Moon Glow, track 11. This is a really nice, relaxed, swinging tempo. Again, some stop times for the uh, vocal. It gets her to show her uh, phrasing abilities really well. And then uh, after this one, there's some unison vocalization with the guitar uh, mixed with the bass bowing section. It's a really nice touch. And uh, we end up with uh, But Beautiful. And this is uh, just vocals and guitar. And uh, she introduces the melody really beautifully here over Grasso's comping. Uh, This is a tune with a lot of space and potential to build to a climax. And Crasso is a bit more restrained here, a short solo, which since there's no bass or drums, he accompanies himself, adding a bass line, uh, which he's you know, really good at uh, being a one-man uh, ensemble. And uh, Samara Joy's last vor- verse here brings her into the higher register. She wraps it up with the style, but she doesn't push it too much. Um, so uh, it ends sort of, you know, uh, on this uh, sort of a bit of subdued note. So uh, I really like this recording. This is a great uh, young, talented vocalist. She's youthful. Uh, she has a really pure voice, uh, which is nice. You can, you can only have this kind of voice when you're really young. Uh, however, she has a maturity of style. Uh, she's obviously listened to her Saravon and... Uh, Billie Holiday and numerous uh, other really singers of this time. Um, and well, she's young. Uh, we just listened to uh, Shin Yi, uh, a mature woman uh, that has its own charm on its own. But you know what? The common point is, and this is the most important thing to me for a vocalist, is they give you the joy of singing. Hmm. Uh, 
you feel the happiness that they feel when they're singing a song. And that's, you know, to me, what is the most important thing when I listen to a vocalist. So they both have this here. Uh, the only thing on this album, I mean, uh, Grasso's sound, it, as we've heard before, is really thick and dark. I mean, he's got that, you know, that that guitar tone. I think it's a bit too strong in the mix compared to the vocal sometimes. The, yeah, I thought so too. And he's then, really a soloist. Though. Yeah, I don't think he and really his style is a bit band. too busy for accompanying sometimes. He, he has to uh, switch up if the vocalist is going to be the main. However, there's no slight on uh, Samara. Uh, you can or see that, hmm. yeah, or him, yeah. I mean, he's fine on his own. It's just you know, an adjust, yeah. a bit of more adjustment might be needed. But uh, Samara Joy, she's got a really bright future ahead, and I really like this approach for a new artist. You start with the old songbook and show us what you can do with classical material. So, of course, yeah, there's some familiar standards here, but there's some dig, you know, digging really deeper into some of these unexpected old gems. Uh, like Jim. You know, you like Jim, <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, these with these old tunes, they really have great, strong melodies, and she does really well with them. Uh, and uh, the, the curious thing is, as we get towards, you know, three quarters of the way through, some of these are surprisingly short runs through. I, I wonder they could have uh, done more with uh, less material, Maybe that was an odd part of the one. program, really, because it was just yeah. these three really it's short a, tracks in a, a row. So interestingly, with that short program, and uh, that about her, she doesn't scat or improvise at all. Yeah, um, we may hear that in the future, though. Yeah, we'll have to I see. mean, yeah, that's okay. She's got great enunciation. There's a lot of people who scat sing, and then you think, well, <laughs> maybe they shouldn't have done that, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, that's if that's not her thing. That's fine. Uh, I don't. I don't count that as a minus. I don't miss it because uh, what she does what's more important in delivering the lyrics clearly and uh, with a really convincing passion. Uh, I love the purity of her voice. Um, you know, I think to, you know to be a great singer, you have to convey the sort of intention of the lyrics uh, convincingly. Uh, I, I mean, I remember reading reviews of Frank Sinatra, like someone saying, that fool, he sings like he actually believes those lyrics are true or something like that. Well, uh, that's what you want. Yeah, that's what you <laughs> want, right? You want you want to, to believe what's uh, there. And uh, I, I really loved the, uh, the purity of her voice, uh, you know, the lilting swing quality to it, and uh, the fact that... Uh, she has that sort of restraint that usually takes some years to to develop, but that seems to be built into her personality. And uh, yeah, um, I think uh, I'm going to be really looking forward to what she sings uh, next after this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, what a well, great voice in this. In this, <laughs> it's amazing to hear a voice like this, like sort of pop out in this era of pop music of people, you know, of that younger generation. Uh, so yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So what a great, uh, week it's been. We've got some, uh, really good music for you guys to listen to. So yeah, yeah. give that, Go check give that a listen and just enjoy yourselves this week. You're not going to get another double vocal recommendation for me until I'm probably much <laughs> older. So, you know, 
Well, it depends who who's out there recording, I guess. I, I guess, know. but I can't yeah. see it happening till the planets well, align again. I don't know. Maybe uh, I don't know. Somebody will come up. We got Catherine Russell, Diane Reeves. Well, if she and comes Cassandra out with Wilson else, then, at the same yeah. time, but um, yeah, I'm hey, I'm really happy to hear uh, a new young voice sort of pop out there, and um, I was really nice to uh, see the old faces and uh, some old friends pop back in uh, all lining up here. And we well, got to what, say Bach and we've got Brahms and we've got uh, everything. You got a lot week, of contemporary so. composers, including contemporary. Uh, one from Japan. Finally, we got, we got that in. And uh, I got to tell you, we got to, we got to wrap this up because the, uh, the booze is getting warm. Oh. <laughs> well, you're definitely going to find, I can tell we've been at it for a while. You're going to find something. Every, there's something for everyone in this week. Uh, yeah. So you're going to check that out. And uh, you'll find uh, anything classical from Baroque to modern uh, to classical. We got it all here at the Adult Music Podcast. We've got some great jazz. We've got piano, vocals. And then, as we said, don't miss the Renitsky interview. Got an interview. That's going to be out on Friday. You're going to need to fill in your classical repertoire knowledge with this uh, composer who's finally being recorded in modern times. You're going to need that. Uh, right. I'm really looking forward to that. As soon as that album's yeah. out, I'm going to check that out, especially yeah, I'm going to check The that Carpenter out too. and uh, the other one. Yes. Uh, Daniel, they made, they uh, made us really interested in this composer. Yeah, We're really, really interested in hearing more about him. That's right. All right. So this is... Uh, been episode 23 of adult music check out uh interview three coming out this friday and uh we'll be back next week with episode 24 i think we'll have to do something special for episode 25 that should be sort of a milestone yeah it'll be a milestone uh, for what are we gonna do just more more reviews <laughs> more more stuff uh i should say more that stuff. um i think before uh next week we're gonna actually break the 2000 download uh yeah, looking Mark, good. So, right, two thousand downloads. Uh, uh, looking forward to that. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, the demographic is constantly evolving. Uh, we've shifted more. We were sort of split equally between uh, U.S. and Japan, but we've gone more to uh, U.S. and then uh, India. Way to go, U.S. Yeah, way to go, U.S. India is up there. Uh, we've gotten a lot more U.K. listeners, uh, which oh, is I'm nice. Glad to hear too. that. So we'd like to hear from some uh, people there. Uh, send us any comments uh, that you might have. And, uh, yeah, the rest is rounding out nicely. We're getting uh, random uh, downloads uh, from all over the globe, uh, from all corners, every continent. So there's, listen there's people listening listening to uh, good classical and jazz music all out there. So uh, please continue tuning in to adult music and uh, we'll be listening to uh, stuff to give you some recommendations for or against <laughs> for uh, as uh, long as we uh, keep encountering all this interesting new material that's coming out every week. Yeah, I got some stuff coming up next week that I'm wondering what I'm going to say about it. <laughs> I've already heard it, but I'm kind of like, I'm kind of undecided on what I think about it. All the better. All the better. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been episode 23, and we'll be back for episode 24 next week. Uh, please do take a couple minutes to like, follow, subscribe on whatever platform you're at. Uh, if you want to contact us directly, 
uh, please do so at Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of new classical and jazz recordings. And uh, before then, please do check out Friday when uh, our interview number three, Renitsky, comes out and some classical music you need to hear. Uh, And after that, we'll be back again next Monday. And so please tune in for music for the mature mind on the Adult Music Podcast. Mm -hmm.